Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week, I, Russell Brand, that's who I am, spoke with Jordan Peterson. You know who Jordan Peterson is because he's famous. He's the professor of psychology. He's a clinical psychologist. I really enjoy speaking with Jordan Peterson and I think he's actually a very, very lovely man. And I think you'll see a different side to him in this conversation. I also think that much of the cultural ephemera attached to Jordan Peterson is not a fair reflection of who he is as a human being, but more a sort of convenient use of his rhetoric for the ongoing cultural wars that we have to resolve if we're going to move forward and confront our true opponents the real obstacles people in positions of legitimate genuine authority you know he's written that book 12 rules for life and antidote to chaos you will know by now surely he's written beyond order 12 more rules for life so we're going to be talking to jordan peterson in a bit and if you're joining us for the first time in order to hear the second hour then yeah please spool forward the second hour is pretty amazing if you're listening to the whole thing now you're going to enjoy it it's intense it's tearful it's beautiful it's revelatory you will enjoy it very much did you enjoy it jen yeah it was great what's the best bit i liked oh i can't give it away though can i you could just allude to it i liked when he talked about his youtube controversies his interviews and oh, why yeah. he's why it's right that women should be challenging the patriarchy. Patriarchy? He said that it's good that they're doing it. It's their job. Our job. <laughs> <laughs> you can identify however you want, can't you? you we can all can. I'm fine. <laughs> well, Jen, you can say that, but I'm out here looking at you. And it do not look fine. It looks like a maniac. It looks like... I it's dressed very classically. You, you got them flares on, haven't you? That's classic. Classic flares? <laughs> So that's what you're the best claiming. jeans I've ever bought. How so? It's so it's like being hugged. Ooh, hugged by a pair of trousers. A trouser I put them hug. on and I was like, mm. You were like, mmm. <laughs> Is that what you did, honestly? Mm, not, not with my what, you nose. sucked your teeth? You let your top teeth go over your bottom lip and no, went, I just mm. liked it. They were nice. It's wretched. <laughs> I like to do a listener shout out. Listener shout out. Yeah. This one is to Professor Noel Fitzpatrick, a.k.a. the Super Vet, who listens to our Banter Decanter. Let's listen to the jingle now. Banter Decanter. Yeah. There you go. Yep. <laughs> Why don't you have a jingle? But a jingle. That would be what it would call it. Jingle. The jingle. Okay, well, now you have to make it to say another thing. We're working on the jingle tomorrow. Hup, hup. No! <laughs> it's, the, it's time for the jingle. Jingle. Oh, no, mm. no, mm. it'd be like that. Uh. No, no, mm. time for the jingle. It, what? No, no, time for the jingle. That's how I do it. That's how I do it. Oh, God. Justin Hawkins, do your damnedest. It's time that Justin Hawkins was credited as the creator yeah. for these jingles. We have credited him, haven't we? I'd like to say that I'm very proud of these achievements of his. Okay. I'll tell him. I'll he can listen to this, can I'll he? Play him Does he bit. subscribe? Yeah. That was, that's another one for the jingle. <laughs> oh, no. Tip, do he it. Time for the jingle. Um, he watches your Instagram videos. They're free. I want Luminary. Where are you paying? Yeah, you're not paying him for these. That's a good point. Give him a free one. Give him a free one. Give him a free pass. Send him one of the codes. Send him a free code. He's got to have it for free. Okay. He surely won't... 
he'll sh- if he knows <laughs> you, he must be sick and tired of you, and no, he'll be glad. He's really nice to me. No, he's, he can't be very well. So here's some of the comments <laughs> from the Vandana Shiva episode. Comments. We've got a jingle for that, haven't we? <laughs> yes. Now time for comments. <laughs> Deirdre Arthur. I wonder if that's Deirdre, who I know. Vandana may be single-handedly be saving the planet. Picture of planet, and with your help! Exclamation mark. Heart hands. If you hadn't said that, I'd have added it. Oh my goodness, I cannot get enough of this woman. And Russell, you were helping people like myself feel even more empowered. I feel everything you're saying and sharing and how clearly moved you were in this conversation. I was moved, weren't I, Jen? Yeah, you were. What did you do? Look away. Yeah. Look away. Because you were... Doing that kind of. I didn't squint. You did. You squinted your eyes shut. Yeah, you did though. Like do dogs' that. bottoms there. <laughs> That's what an impression of you though. I wouldn't have done that, Jen. <laughs> I wouldn't have been so overwhelmed that I'd have allowed my eyes to look like dogs' bottoms. I've got a little thing called dignitas. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I feel everything you're saying and sharing. How clearly moved you in this conversation. It can't be easy to work with that Irish woman. Oh, thank you, Idila Sequita. Absolute self-discovery. Excellent. What a knowledgeable speaker. Such simplistic truth, which seems so radical to Western civilization. <laughs> Do you have a bit of phlegm in your mouth? <laughs> I don't get phlegm in the mouth. You're full of the stuff. When we're doing our group meditations, because we do group meditations, yeah, because we're quite spiritual. We're quite spiritual, aren't we, here at work? Oh, yeah. Jen, you had a whole bunch of phlegm in your mouth sloshing <laughs> about. I can see it. It's, it gathers at your bottom teeth. Just behind them. Your fl- <laughs> you got five flavors of phlegm in your all the different consistencies. Yours like a phlegm ecosystem, flotsam and jets phlegm is what you've got. Jingle. Five flavors of phlegm. <laughs> five thicknesses and textures of phlegm up at your palate, that what? rough palate of yours. That's because I said you you burnt your mouth and you didn't like that. You've got a rough palate. I do have a rough palate. It's like the roof of one of them caves that people go caving in. It's you know, probably that's weird if you tights. say that because people be like, how do you know what the, how rough her palate is? Staggle tights yeah. up your rough palate. <laughs> What's that? That's what I was going to say. People are going to wonder why. How do you know? Uh, you can tell that her palate's in chaos. <laughs> <laughs> Call that a palate. Who's going to be listening? Oh, Jordan Peterson. He'll oh, fast forward through this. Jordan oh, Peterson no. and Michaela Peterson. There we go. And I like both of them. Go for it another 15 seconds. No. Hey, go for another 15 seconds. That's George Pizza, right? Go for another 15 seconds, hey? Now listen, bucko. Not listening to this crap from that Jenny Mae Finn, bucko. Be like that. Uh, Alan Leibovit. A beautiful and powerful interview. I was deeply moved by how emotional at Russell Brand got. Why have you included so many of these? And where the hell is Anne Hoy? Steph Hoy! (laughs) Steph Hoy! Where is she? You've, you've alienated her no, like you, you alienated, alienated everyone. Her. Have you been on any more trotty dates? That was aggressive. Have you though? No, of course not. Wasn't aggressive. What's the, there's no point. There is no point, not for them. Noel Fitzpatrick <laughs> listens to this while he's doing his exercise, while he's doing his surgery. So this is, is he a, a shout fan out. of me? He doesn't like you, Jen, no. He does like me. A lot of people don't. And like, well, he sees you as a fellow Irish person. Yeah, well, that's just a... That's a just a fact. fact. Yeah. That's just a fact, yeah. an accident of birth. Not the only accident oh. surrounding your birth. Oh. <laughs> oh my, come my, on. Too much? No. My dad said I was an accident. What? Sorry, Jenny? My dad had already said that. But you were an accident. Well, my mum said I was very 
On purpose. So dad says on purpose. No, dad says accident. Mum says on purpose. Who to believe? And that's what we're doing <laughs> as our poll on this week's episode of Under the Skin. Is Jenny a deliberate baby on nature's cruelest mistake? I'll leave that <laughs> for you, the listeners, to decide. And no, much of that ridicule there, that was for your amusement there. If you're a subscriber, you're going to get another podcast above the noise. Now, there's no banter decanter in that because this is me leading guided meditations. And though Jenny is there, there. we keep her wisely (laughs) silent so that you and I, the listener and me, can have a spiritual experience. Now, I'm not claiming to be any kind of guru, but I have worked hard on myself. I've had to work hard on myself. And in these meditations, taken from the best, learn from the greatest. I talk you, whether you're a beginner, or if you're an expert, you'll probably go, yes, that was quite good, hopefully. But if you're a beginner, or someone that's like me, still, you know, I don't know, I've been meditating 12, 13 years, I'm still obviously still learning life's work. Anyway, these guided meditations, I hope are inclusive, joyful, and fun somewhat free of the piety that can be in you know normal meditations anyway above the noise is free you're a subscriber already you get another podcast every week from me let me know what you think of it hit me up so we can communicate and uh, if you know jenny's the producer so god knows how long it'll take for any communications you send to actually reach me it's and it's out on the 21st. what about when you put my email address into the podcast Jen? you really hold grudges eh? do you find me supposed to, be to a let go hold? You do let go of grudges, yes. You forgot to true. say when the podcast is out. Huh? The podcast. Which one? Above the noise. Above the noise is out on twenty first of April. Yeah. You get under the skin and above the noise. That's two podcasts a week. I'll be releasing a new guided meditation every Wednesday. Here's the trailer. Hello and thank you for joining me for Above the Noise from Luminary with me, Russell Brand, where we together using various meditation techniques that I'll guide you through. Move above the noise in our lives, both inner and outer. Join me on a meditation journey where I'll be releasing new meditations every week with my new podcast, Above the Noise, only on Luminary. And, God, next week, Edward Snowden. What an episode that's going to be. I've I've had that conversation already. Have a look at some of the YouTube videos where I'm trailing it and where we're discussing it on my YouTube channel. Have a look at Awakening with Russell Brand as well. There's lots and lots of content. You are our premium concern. You are a subscriber. You are close to the heart. When live events begin, when the when the rocket ship comes down, when the ark is built, you will be you will be ushered aboard on a pathway of petals. We're very grateful to you. We're offering you tremendous thanks and gratitude. Thank you for listening to us. Stay with us. Oh, and remember, get my Audible original revelation if you ain't got it yet. It's a very good little uh, book that I wrote. Isn't it, Jen? Yes. You've not it's not a book. Audible original. Thank you. Audible original. Well done, Jen. That alone is <laughs> worth your week's wages. Thanks. And I mean that because there's nothing else you've done. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we've been frivolous. We've been silly. Now let's have an intelligent conversation the first thing you need to do if you're planning one of those is extract Jenny May Finn. I acknowledge that. That's what we're going to do now. It's me and Jordan. I'm there, though. <laughs> I'm there, though. <laughs> Ruining it in the background. Did You You weren't even properly listening, I don't I think. You probably sat there nibbling the tops off of cream eggs and trying <laughs> to suck out its fondants, weren't you? I did eat a cream egg during one, two podcasts, actually. What is this problem you've got? Easter. 
Yeah, that's it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's stuff. So some people, it's a holiday for Jenny May Finn. It's an addiction. All right, so let's listen to this wonderful conversation with Professor Doctor. I can't remember what his title is. Do you know? It's Jordan Peterson. It's the Doctor. great Jordan Peterson. Doctor Peterson. It's a wonderful conversation. There are some challenging moments. There's some tearful moments. We get into cultural war stuff. We get into metaphysics. I, f- I feel very comfortable and happy talking to Jordan Peterson. And I'm very happy to have had him on a guest. He's a person that I admire very much. Hope you enjoy this. Did I swallow too much spit then, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoy Did I look shocked? You just, you just looked your normal self again. That's <laughs> the sad fact. Let's, let's listen to this uh, episode with Jordan Peterson. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. All right. Apologies for the delay. It's no trouble at all. Trying to make sure that I'm completely here for this as much completely here as i can be you look completely there you look very handsome you look different from when i saw you just a couple of weeks ago yeah well the day we talked wasn't a very good day for me really this is better and i've had a a last two weeks have been markedly better and so i was diagnosed with sleep apnea and uh severe sleep apnea and so now i have a machine and now i'm actually getting some sleep for the first time in who knows how long, 10 years, maybe. Yeah, you look maybe. good. You look good. Are you all right to start? Are you all right for that to be used? Would you like this to be a clear in? Um, we can we can go according to your, your requirements. I'm ready. Thanks, Jordan. It's so lovely to see you. Thanks for doing this. I'm looking forward to the conversation a lot. Well, you look like you're um, reawakening. I'm really interested in the sort of... I wonder if you have... Given your uh, studies of uh, archetypes and archetypal narratives, how you feel about, of course, I, we've talked somewhat about your suffering and I get the sense from speaking to both to you and Michaela, that it's not something you want to sort of rehash and rehearse, especially, and I certainly understand to as, as much as anyone can, the kind of uh, medical problems that you went through. Um, how do you relate to this reemergence into the public sphere, how do you feel about it after what was a pe- very peculiar, unique, and yeah, it's very specific emergence into pu- public consciousness the first time, and then what seems to have been a, a series of real trials? How do you how do you feel now, and how do you fit that into your understanding of uh, psychology, and in, indeed to indeed to your, into your writing? Well, I feel uncertain, grateful. Uh, afraid and excited sometimes all simultaneously and I cycle through those Um, I mean I was dancing with my wife a couple of days ago and she said to me I didn't I can't believe I'm alive and I said I can't believe I'm alive either I can't believe we're both here and it it was because we hadn't danced together I suppose probably for two years um, so it was a big deal and we're both shell-shocked by what's happened and by the fact that maybe she's she's doing very well um, she looks healthy it's been two years now for her um, and things seem to be turning around for me I mean I was 
I didn't think I'd get, I didn't think I was going to live. Yeah. Really? Oh, it was, it was, and I don't mean once or twice. I meant for a whole year. It seemed impossible to me that I could survive. I, I was too sick to go on as far as I could tell, but I didn't die, which was a shock on a daily basis. And now, well, it, Things are much better, have been getting much better over the last four months, you know, and I, t and then associated with that, I was very ill and immobilized because of that and in a tremendous amount of pain and anxiety. And then I also wasn't engaged in any activity. I, I mean, I did edit my book during all of this. That's the one thing I more or less hung on to, but I didn't have an occupation and it wasn't obvious to me that I would ever have one again. I didn't know what would happen to my public reputation, say, if it was salvageable um, I didn't know if I would ever be able to do any of the things that I had become accustomed to doing because they were all complicated things. Like my clinical practice was very complex. Being a professor is complex. Doing podcasts and, and interviews is very complex. Lectures, it's all difficult. And if you're not healthy and at the top of your form, you can't, you probably shouldn't be doing it at all in some sense. And so it wasn't obvious to me how I could start that up again or if I could or how people would respond or if I had any right to do it, or, and so I've been, you know, tentatively putting a foot forward, mostly with YouTube interviews and podcasts, um, and so far that seems to be working, and I started writing yesterday, I wrote for the first time in a year, I wrote some two pages of original material, and that's a huge deal, and so today when I was showering and trying to get myself upright, instead of being racked with pain, um, I, my mind would wander to what I was writing. And that was a real relief to be engaged in that creative enterprise again. And so it's all of that. And I'm shocked and, and I still really don't know what is going to happen next. So we'll see. When we spoke on, um, uh, your daughter's podcast on Michaela's uh, podcast, which is on, which is on YouTube, you talked about gratitude. And now you're, um, you know, what I was interested to hear you describe your state as somewhat uncertain and fearful, in particular because I feel that m many of the people that uh, have criticized you and many of the people that adore you uh, attracted, were attracted to at least this perception of uh, s sort of strident certainty ethical and moral certainty, uh, intellectual rigor. Have you, do, is there anything that you would alter about the kind of, uh, the, the your position as a, a public figure prior to these series of crises? Do you see it as a sort of a necessary and um, sort of an, uh, uh, just an, the kind of evolutions that narrative produces all the time? Or would you say there's anything that you would... Uh, now withdraw or, or, or reframe? Well, I would say that whatever transformations might be occurring with me, I, I would say occur, have occurred in the realm of ideas. Um, the, the new book that I've written, Beyond Order, is more communitarian. It's more liberal than the first book, technically speaking. It's also because it concentrates on the dangers of order rather than the dangers of chaos. And so that's a nice balance to the mm. first book. And that was part of the plan, the vision from the beginning. Um, you know, people who are concerned with an excess of chaos tend to be more conservative and people who are concerned with an excess of order tend to be more liberal, all things considered. And I started with a book about chaos for 
and concluded at least this two-book series with a book on on uh, the dangers of order. But it's also the second book is also more uh, communica- communitarian in in nature. So I've stressed, for example, the importance of community and relationship in the maintenance of sanity. Like we outsource the problem of maintaining our own sanity to the people around us, and then all we have to do is pay attention to their cues. But that, and some of that's derived from what's happened to me. I mean, what I've observed over the last two years has been an unbelievable outpouring of um, support for my wife and my family and me, with punctuated exceptions, obviously, but broadly speaking, my family has come through. My family and my wife's family have been so supportive of us. It's, it's, it, it exceeds any expectations I would have had to begin with. They, people went out of their way so much to come live with us for weeks at a time and, and take care of either her or me or both of us. And, um, and that was family and friends. And, and so I have a friend right now who walks with me every day. He's a friend from college. And, uh, you know, I have a really close friendship with him that's really been cemented hard again over the last six months. But he came to visit me in Russia. You know, I had lots of people who went way out of their way. And it was life-saving for both of us. And uh, then I got a tremendous amount of support from my viewers and listeners and readers. And, and you know, they sent, when Tammy was in the hospital, they sent hundreds of letters talking about praying for us. And, you know, my sister printed a lot of those out and put them up on the hospital wall in bright colors. And, you know, it was really helpful. And so, you know, I'd realized... You, know, you can think about this in some sense. I think about it anyways as an elaboration of, of the hero mythology, in which I'm very interested in. You know, the, the archetypal hero goes into the unknown and gains something of value or sometimes fights a tyrant and, and, and reconstitutes the kingdom. But I will leave that part of it out for now. You go out into the unknown and find something of value and bring it back. But then it's shared and distributed. That's the second part of that story, the communicative aspect of it. And that's partly, I mean, I'm very interested in communicative technology, but but it's also the case that an element of that is that that's something that, it's like King Arthur and the round table. King Arthur's the king, and the knights are, you know, in some sense subordinate to him, but not really. It's a round table, and every knight enters the forest at the place that looks darkest to him, but there's a group effort there, and the redemptive process, let's say, that, which is what hero mythology concentrates on in the final analysis, is something that is everyone's responsibility, but that we all need help with. It's so interesting, because it's your problem, but you can have help. It's okay that you have help, that everyone is on board. And so I think that I understand that more deeply, what that means now. And and hopefully I'm expressing that in my last book, and while in... You know, all these YouTube interviews that I'm doing, not on other people's shows like I am with you right now, but I'm trying to let other people speak. I mean, I interrupt a lot and I talk a lot, but I'm, you know, I'm trying to highlight the accomplishments of other people as much as I possibly can. And I'm really happy about that. And it's really necessary. There's there's no negative to it at all. This um, journeying into darkness and returning with the bounty or boon in order that it may be communally shared is yes uh, like an important and a powerful narrative 
Do you think that we are somewhat politically bereft when in the narrow spectrum of uh, countries such as the United States, there is a heavy focus on individualism wherever you might fall in that admittedly narrow spectrum, i.e. liberalism, for want of a better word, is seems to me to be focused very much on the individual, the rights of the individual, the role of the individual. And traditionally, uh, the, p- p- the pursuit of the American dream and individualism has been sort of, perhaps is the backbone of, cons- I mean, political conservatism in America. Do you think this kind of dearth of real communal values is a strong and the, or even governing factor in this kind of n- n- political nadir, America in particular, but the world seems to be experiencing? It's a good question. I mean, I, I do think in the West that if, if we go back to that fundamental hero mythology, the hero story, is that the romantic emphasis is often placed on the journey outward and the and the heroic encounter, and not so much on the return home and the distribution. And I, each of those are equally important. The, Clearly, I mean, if you find something valuable and then you can share it with other people, obviously that multiplies the value. And I do think that you're right, that that the the liberal message has emphasized the individual element of that and comparatively de-emphasized the other element. But I don't see anything really nefarious in that fundamentally. I think it's, it isn't obvious that we know how to do that. I can give you an example, okay? So, well, I've been talking to people like Bjorn Lomberg and Matt Ridley and and Michael Shermer and and uh, um, uh, who else would fit in that category? Uh, Steven Pinker, these irrational optimist types, materialist atheists, fundamentally, and that, that's not a criticism, enlightenment types, and they keep hammering home the message that if you look at the data... Uh, uh, Marion Tupi has written a beautiful coffee table book showing this. It's 10 trends that every educated person should be aware of, and, and then a bunch of micro trends. If you look at major economic trends globally, so many things are getting better so quickly, although still incrementally, that it's really uh, it's unparalleled in human history, and it's accelerating. But it isn't obvious how to make that romantic. And 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 so it's it's a problem with storytelling to some degree. It's like, well, what do you say to young if Black Lives Matter or Antifa or 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 right wing um, groups that have a conspiratorial element call to a romantic element in young people? They they offer them an adventure, and that's really important. But an adventure, the adventure of incremental rational progress, isn't an adventure, right? It, it's almost the opposite of that. It's slow, and incremental, and and diffuse and it's hard to make that into an adventure and so the communitarian element is it's not easy to transform into a motivating message and I mean that's I was trying to do that to some degree in 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 beyond order you know that trying to make that into a into a message that was of motivational significance and that's really it you have to do that if you you know because look there's there's nothing that's not within our grasp now, Russell, as a, as, a, as a species. 
We can do whatever we want. Now we have to figure out what we should do. And then we have to figure out how to communicate that in a way that's motivating to everyone, so everyone's on board. That's the problem that faces us. I become concerned by these, this idea of progressivism. I feel that it is sometimes used to underwrite a kind of uh, intransigence around power, and I think it's used as a panacea to dissolve the voices of discontented people. The idea of looking at, like, look, you can see that the average, like a hundred years ago, there was people that have had rickets in Victorian England. I feel that yeah. the my, the challenge is that for me, what that does spiritually is it denies something that I can plainly see before my eyes that big corporations and state power are collaborating in order to conserve power and to I think people are becoming less and less able to exercise agency in ordinary life. I'm talking about countries like, like you know, anglophonic countries in particular. I think the pandemic has, you know, uh, whether you know, most people would say necessarily has brought about a lot, a lot of legislation that's not been through due democratic process. I feel that it's it allowed big tech to have more access to people's data. And I personally query the objectives of... Uh, like some of these uh, uh, almost insurmountably large corporations, particularly when they have uh, governments that are quick to placate them and operate primarily in their well, look, service. Look, you put, you, you've put your finger on a fundamental problem. I mean, imagine, so for the incremental progressivists, they look at the average, right? The average. And if you look, for example, at the average number of calories that someone in sub-Saharan Africa has access to now, it's like it's they have access to as many calories per day as the typical person in Portugal did in 1960. So it's a walloping transformation. And they, they've passed uh, satiety. So what will happen now is that the next problem on the consumption side that faces sub-Saharan Africans on average will be a rise in obesity. But the problem with the, with statistics or even ideas that concentrate on the average is you, you don't take into account the distribution. And so just because the average has improved massively doesn't mean that there's not problems of unequal distribution, severe problems of unequal distribution. So imagine we have two, these are existential problems though, in some sense, they're not political problems, they're deeper than political problems. You have the problem of absolute privation and, and that's, the, that's the normal state of affairs. You're, you're born with nothing in some sense, right? It, left to your own devices, you just starve and die. So that's, that's the susceptibility to absolute privation. And then the second problem is the susceptibility to relative privation. And those are both big problems. You know, and so the optimists say, well, look, we're really, really uh, solving the problem of absolute privation. And they say, well... Every day, 200,000 people in the world are lifted out of the UN's definition of abject poverty. So maybe they slide from $1.90 a day to $2.10 a day. And that's to be celebrated, but then at the same time, you can say, well, yeah, but they're still living on $2.10 a day. And both of those are right simultaneously. Like, it is something worth celebrating, but it's also, it doesn't, there's still the lingering problem of relative deprivation. And when you hear everybody rattling about inequality, that's why. And it's, val it, it's not like there's not a valid point there. 
I would also query those metrics somewhat in the the, the, the lens through which we're regarding the problem is discounting, I think, a large part of what it is to be human. I just spent sort of an hour talking to Vandana Shiva, the Indian academic, ecologist, and uh, like she's a very powerful woman, incredibly anti-establishment, challenging the sort of the influence of Bill Gates, the, the, um, uh, the patenting of seeds over there in India, the negative impact of big tech on their agricultural industry. And what she clearly regards as uh, yes malfeasance and a de- deliberate um, disruption of the Indian way of life and like to speak when I speak with uh, somebody like that like these I feel that that kind of data and I've, you know I think I've spoken to some of the people you're talking about Yuval Noah Harari people I sort of admire and respect who tell good stories I feel that those stories are, are promoted because they can be used to underwrite the myth of progressivism because materially scientifically medically there have doubtlessly been so many incredible advances and I think that what we neglect is something that it seems to me you're very interested in our spiritual evolution our personal awakening and like as you said a, a moment ago Jordan the fact is is we could imagine and dream and create all manner of systems into being and that what we are prohibited from imagining what we're prohibited from creating it frustrates me but both from okay so we could think about that technically in some sense again so now we could say there's three problems there's an absolute privation problem there's a relative privation problem, and now there's also the problem of rank-ordering values. And I would say that's the spiritual problem. The spiritual problem is something like, well, what is most important and vital, and how do we know that that's what we're pursuing? And that's the fundamental religious question, which is, what is it that is of most value? What, what should orient, in the final analysis, what should orient us? So you see that expressed in stories like the Pinocchio story, for example, which I use consi- consistently because, well, it's a work of genius and, and millions of people have watched it and found it compelling. And so it's a cultural phenomenon. So it's worthy of in- inquiry. But so Geppetto orients himself to a star and that's what, and so he's properly oriented, right? He lifts his eyes above the horizon to something glittering and bright in the darkness. He's properly oriented and that's why he can raise Pinocchio to be something other than a puppet. Right? He, he can raise him up to be a fully developed human being. Uh, it's a religious issue. And, and the question is, well, what is the star that should guide us? And, well, that's something we have to talk about an awful lot. I mean, I'm interested in hero mythology primarily because the stories we tell one another and have told one another from time immemorial constitute our attempts to orient ourselves properly in life towards whatever the highest value might be and it's part of an ongoing discussion that the whole human race participates in that that that's part that's part of the process by which we 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 identify and rank order and communally celebrate let's say and pursue our values and it's of crucial importance to do that ritually and dramatically and also explicitly and philosophically so and it's, a, it's also a problem. It is a problem. When, I, when I've talked to Bjorn Lomberg and, and Matt Ridley uh, and, and Marion Tupi, for that matter, about their work, I mean, one of the things, they're perfectly aware of this, that there's something lacking in the story of progress against absolute deprivation. It's not enough. That's, that's part of what makes it lack its compelling nature, apart from the criticism that you raised, which is, well, what about relative 
privation, which is a perfectly relative, relevant criticism. But you have to have both of those. Like, just because there's still relative p poverty doesn't mean that victory over absolute poverty isn't worth celebrating. It, it certainly is. No. So, okay, so we have to orient ourselves spiritually. Absolutely. I agree with that. There's no doubt about that. My sense is that this, um, you know, um, vanquishing of absolute poverty, poverty is an inadvertent side effect of different objectives that are to do with the conservation and perpetuation of the abiding machinery of commerce, capitalism, and consumerism, maybe an inadvertent consequence. Like, for example, when you, don't you sometimes when you think of sl like slavery and the abolition of slavery, that that slavery was maintained for as long as possible. Then there comes a point where it's like, oh God, we can't get away with slavery anymore. But we can, we will, we will rescind our right to have slaves, but we will keep an economic class primarily made up of people, you know, in, say, the case of uh, the United States of America, made up from that same kind of background, you know, that these kind of, and like, that can then be rightly labelled progress, but in terms of a kind of a, an epiphany, a cultural and social, social epiphany. Now, I know this is difficult, Jordan, because I, I suppose I, I'm suggesting there are universals, that there is an absolute North Star that we can all refer to, but isn't any religious man making that claim that there is well, some... I'm, I'm I think it's too I think it's too one-sided Russell because I mean there's no doubt that corruption exists and that hierarchies can degenerate into power structures and become tyrannical and counterproductive but that's what happens when they degenerate it's it's that isn't how a properly functioned human hierarchy works and they're not very stable if they degenerate in that manner like, let me give you an example you can tell me what you think about this and and then I'll talk about slavery particularly because it wasn't just an economic calculation to get rid of slavery. I mean, there, Britain, the, the movement to abolish slavery was, was driven by truly believing Christians. They had a walloping effect over a number of decades in eradicating slavery. It was a moral move. And, you know, it was replaced in some sense by another kind of slavery. But one thing that happened in some sense is that as modern the modern economic system displaced the slave system which had existed forever we all became our own slaves right because most people enslave themselves for eight hours a day and then they can be free men the other 16 and so we've substituted our own slavery and the slavery of machines for the slavery of others so that wasn't only technical it was also a moral decision and i i don't think you should discount the moral striving that went into that because it's an important part of the historical record and uh you don't want to you don't want to ignore the contribution of moral people in the past to our progress right because it gives you a very dim view of humanity lots of people knew slavery was undesirable and wrong and, and risked a tremendous amount to 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 move beyond it actually so, i wouldn't discount that moral contribution uh, you know with regard to any of the great cultural conversations and conflicts but what I feel is that the, inverted commas, the system is most adept at absorbing what is required and repackaging. For example, when, um, like, you know, when British colonization of India ended, it, there, we sort of soon see the establishment of economic entities that are in, enable a, a continuum of, the, of comparable relationships. So ordinary life for many people in that region doesn't significantly improve. I feel that most power that is conceded is 
conceded under the condition that it doesn't affect the interests of the powerful significantly. That there are is a rarefied strata of society which is, I would say, somewhat immobile, although you, I suppose we could argue that the emergence of these new, the barons that have replaced oil and steel barons in the tech world, you know, that that is different. There's some sort of fluidity. There is, you know, I'm not arguing against that. But what I'm saying is, is that if we have a goal, and I'm not, I'm not talking about old, you know, like Marxism, socialism, the left in those terms. I'm actually talking about, <laughs> I'm not talking about the realization of God's kingdom on earth. Like, you know, when you talk about in a personal way, Jordan, the idea that there may be someone that would look benevolently upon you if they knew that you were living your life trying to be beautiful. What type of world, what type of communities, what type of systems, what type of dem democracies might we favour if um, if this became our shared collective and, and individual priorities? And That's what we're trying to figure out, Russell. That's why we're having this conversation. Yes. That's what we're trying to figure out. If, if Fundamentally, I believe that. That's, that's, that's the purpose of real discussion. And I think one of the reasons that YouTube conversations like this have become so powerful is because you can actually have those discussions you know it's so what we're doing is so different than network tv it's it's so different it's so revolutionary like i was talking to a wall street journal uh uh reporter the other day and and i said well why do you like youtube and he said well the the conversations just follow this unpredictable thread forward and it's so interesting to watch them i said well that's the logos in action that's what you're seeing. There's nothing more compelling than that. So if we're doing this right, look, the last conversations we've had, including the very last one, have been received very positively. And I believe the reason for that is, I think, that to the best of our mutual abilities, we're trying to get smarter than we were before the conversation because of the conversation. Yes. And people respond extremely positively to that. And isn't that wonderful that that's the case? And so we, we, we are trying to figure this out. And I would also say, don't assume malevolence where ignorance is sufficient. You know, when you look at how a large system operates, you, you don't want to forget that part of the reason it's not doing so well is because people actually don't know how to do it better. It's not the only reason. Malevolence exists, for sure. But, you know, and then what do you do? Well, you try to dispel the ignorance, your own ignorance, what you and I are trying to do right now, hopefully, is to dispel our own ignorance and to share that process with the people who are watching and listening. I believe okay. that the reason that you had such a profound impact in your sort of um, roaring campaign through identity politics, through maleness, is because it's, to me at least it seemed as an observer. It's underwritten by years of clinical practice, a deep understanding of Jung, and we and you were genuinely uh, orating on b b conquering unconscious territories, of awakening out of the unconsciousness. And like when you say that now, you know, don't assume malevolence when uh, ignorance will suffice. And, you know, they they know not what they do. Most people are unconscious our systems are unconscious but for me there is a reason that mainstream media uh, prohibits and precludes certain types of discourse favors other types of discourse and, and this for me is because okay. there is well, a let's let's take it apart for a minute let's take it apart because we'll start with the ignorance before malevolence issue and so we'll look for non-moral reasons first and then go to moral reasons and i think that's a that's a safe approach because you don't cast stones any more than necessary that way well there are massive technological differences between youtube and network tv despite the fact that they're both video the first is 
There's no bandwidth restriction. Bandwidth is now free. You and I can talk for as long as we want, and essentially no one has to pay for it except with their attention. And so, and so, and then it's permanent, whereas with network TV, it was evanescent. It evaporated as soon as it was spoken. Well, now this conversation will be around for probably longer than either of us would want it to be. It's as permanent as a book. And, th and that, what that means, too, is that I don't have to assume that my audience has a limited attention span or no memory anymore. Because they can go, I know that they can go out and find out things on their own. And so, when I go to do a network TV interview now, it feels like I've transported myself back in time to 1950. And the person I'm talking to, when I'm sitting in the green room before the interview, they're a person and we have a conversation, but as soon as the cameras go on, they're no longer a person. They're a puppet of a, of a machine. And I'm not saying that critically. I'm saying because the bandwidth was so incredibly expensive, the, the, it, there wasn't time for experimentation. It was too expensive. And so everything the interviewer did was scripted. Well, then it was scripted according to, essentially, the dictates and interests of the corporation, obviously. And so then what you end up on with network TV is a discussion with a talking head representing that monolithic organization. You're not talking to another person. And if you were, that person would get fired, right? Because they would now be an individual instead of this immense machine that was necessary because the communication technology was so expensive. So you start with that, and then you might say, well... And furthermore, it was warped by the fact that the corporations of a certain size are protecting their existence, which of course they are, and so are the people within the corporation. Of course they are, just like we would fight for our hierarchical position, of course. So, yes. But all that's gone now, and, and, and now we have this, and now we're figuring out what to do with it. Now, what you said there about the sort of the position of the journalist in the chair and how they become an automaton because their role is so prescriptive within that corporation, that's no different to something that, you know, Chomsky would have said 30, 40 years ago, you wouldn't be in that chair if you didn't share the beliefs of the corporation. This is, for me, chimed... Of course. Yes, of course. This chimed with something Yanis Varoufakis, the former uh, Chancellor of, of Greece under Syriza in that brief moment after the economic crash when there was a surge of leftist populism in Greece said he said that when he met with the EU he realised even when talking to the most powerful minister over economics with whom they were arguing about their sanctions he recognised that that uh, Chancellor uh, he was someone like a German Chancellor or whatever said that he only had the power and this is in some ways plainly obvious he only had the power afforded to him by his role that suggests to me a kind of intransigence and like when you talk about like sort of people in a mainstream media outlet that they're a representative of a certain set of ideals well the same becomes true in a political establishment now we know that there are relationships between obviously we've known for a long time there are relationships between media and government that involves lobbying commerce shared interests now I know like when you talk about it from a sort of an anthropological of perspective you say of course we would all protect our positions in a hierarchy and this returns me to the point Jordan where it requires of us as individuals a kind of personal awakening um, that, that perhaps that the one has to undergo a kind of neck here am I saying that right the kind of journey into darkness that you know that you have uh, recently experienced and I'm sure most of us have our own version of and, and to come out the other side of that with a conclusion not being how do I achieve more as an individual but how do I convey love how do I convey Christ okay, consciousness okay. how well, do I let, let's start well let's start with that then so 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 First of all, you know, 
everyone is now a TV producer and a radio host if they want to be. If you if you have a voice, you can you can communicate with you have the technology to communicate with as many people as you want. So then the next question is, do you have the will, the ability, the desire, and all of that? But you certainly have the te the technological means. So it isn't that people have been rendered voiceless. They have in certain regards, but in other ways they're so powerful that it's absolutely beyond comprehension. And so, and then, and I would say, well, I am definitely of the mind that it's best for, it would be best for everyone to orient themselves. And I've tried to figure out what that orientation would mean. And it's, some of it is, and, and I've used history as my guide as much as I've been able to, philosophy and religious ideas, all of that, trying to puzzle this out. It's like, well, the love part is, okay, you have to decide. You serve someone. That's an old idea. It's Christ or Satan. Fundamentally, that's an archetypal reality. And what that means in some sense is that you're either working for the betterment of things because you're in favor of being and its flourishing and perhaps even its playful and beautiful flourishing. You've decided that despite the horrors of existence, despite the horrors of existence that would drive you to resentment and bitterness and hatred and the desire to destroy, you've decided no. I'm going to aim up, I'm, and that's love. It's like I've, I'm going to aim up, and I'm going to bring everything I can with me. Okay, then the next thing is truth in service of that. And one thing I learned, I think, is that I, I tweeted something out the other day, and like I see people all the time, and they have something they want, and then they use their language to get it. Okay, that's not, that's not how to use language. That's wrong. And the reason it's wrong is because why do you think that your theory about what you want is right? If it's wrong, then you're saying things that are wrong. And so I would say instead, try this. Say what you believe to be true and accept what happens. And that's an adventure, man. You do that. You do that for 10 years and your life will be so different that you won't be able to believe it. It's unbelievably adventurous. To only say what you think is true in right there and then. To be in that moment and to have decided that there's no agenda. I'm just going to say what I think. Regardless of the consequences. And I don't mean carelessly. I really do not mean that. The absolute opposite of careless. You pay attention to every word. And the consequences are miraculous. There's a kind of um, mysticism, I think, that you are describing. Uh, firstly, the ability to remain entirely present. Secondly, the idea that you can respond authentically without uh, an agenda for of personal advancement. This requires, I think, a kind of transcendence. It certainly, from the, my understanding, would require a kind of ego death. The sort of energies that compete in me seem to, the, the tension seems to be between this sort of a, a very vivid sense of uh, love and awakening and service and sort of values of which I'm quite proud. And uh, and and still, you know, uh, I would say, I don't know if I would want to call them atavistic, but quite, quite primordial, sometimes unformed, certainly libidious concupiscent sort of rushes you know like that i'm i i love the idea of living authentically and truthfully in a moment and how sort of potent radical punk and effective divine that could be mischievous tricksterish almost and the, the you know sort right of, you know, yeah that's got the romantic element there because it's unpredictable it's absolutely unpredictable you just don't know what's going to happen you know, but if you, like, let, let's say you have faith. Let's say you have faith. So let's, let's figure out here what we mean by faith. So we're going to say, um, I have faith that if I act out the proposition that being should flourish and I should aid that, I'm going to risk my life 
on that proposition. That's that's going to orient me. I could be wrong, but that I'm going to that's going to be the direction of my life. And then I'm going to tell the truth in service of that. Well, the faith, the faith then is the acting out of that, is the, is the actual uttering of the words and, 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 and the willing to, willingness to observe what emerges as a consequence. And you think, well, do, do you believe that love and truth prevails? Do you believe that? Oh, if you believe it, act it out. Well, then you act it out and it's very unpredictable and, and you do have to watch for the emergence of these counter positions that you describe. You believe it, so you act it out, and you observe what happens, and you accept that as, as you accept that as, as regardless of the consequences in some sense, by presuming from, to begin with, that if it emerges as a consequence of the actions of love and truth, then it is by definition good, regardless of what you think at that moment. I mean, because you have to put your faith somewhere, right? Like, because you don't know everything. You're stuck with it. So do you got a better, do you have a better theory than that? I don't, I can't find a better theory than that. No, they're, like the requirement for faith is pretty clear. The limitations, uh, our, uh, the, the limits of our capacity for knowledge, the limitations of the senses, the uh, uh, abiding mystery, these seem to be perennial. They don't seem like they're going to be surmounted any time soon. I, I recognize that. I am drawn to ask you, like, like when you went into this terrible crisis of health with yourself and Tammy, your wife, and that it was all consumed by this great suffering, you dis like you disappear into this, you know, from the external perspective for for several years. And like during this time, there's this incredible ongoing cultural war, sort of peaking out uh, that again sort of dissolves into um, you know the tr the end of Trump's pe presidency and the emergence of Joe Biden and this kind of global pandemic. The world shifts seminally during this period how do you feel that how do you adjust to that being having been through what you've been through personally which we've touched upon and i've you know we've talked about uh, previously how do you feel about what's changed culturally how and and how how do you uh, line these ideas up now well i would say i'm i'm still puzzling that out to some degree and like everyone partly because I'm faced with, as we all are, with this unbelievable technological revolution. I mean, I think, what do I, that's such a complicated question. I, I'm, I'm doing more of what I was doing before, I suppose. I still believe that, at least insofar as I'm concerned, that there isn't anything better than I can be, that I can be doing than continuing to encourage people. And that's what, how I see my role, is that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, let me tell you a story, okay, I'll, I'll, just a quick story, and this, this happens to me on a regular basis, um, but this happened today, I was walking down, I was sitting on Bloor Street, which is a main street in, in, in Toronto, and uh, this kid came up, he's about 20, and he said, uh, I don't want to disturb you, but I, I watched your biblical lectures a few years ago, and they really helped me. And he was going to walk on, and I said, I said, what's your name? And I always ask people, because as soon as you get their name, then you're in a conversation. They know that you want to talk. It's an open invitation, and, and I do want to talk, because I want to find out, okay, I helped this kid, apparently. How? Exactly. What worked? Because then maybe I can do it again, right? So he said, well, um, 
you know, it made me rethink my religious belief, and now I'm going to church. And I said, okay, like, are you going every week? He said, I know you don't go to church, you know, or you're not a practicing Christian. And and I said, do you go to church? He said, yes, but it's online right now. I said, well, what do you do there? And he goes to the services, and then he has this group of 20-year-olds, and they talk to each other and try to orient themselves properly. And I thought, well, that seems good. That seems like a good thing. So, and, um, and he said that, I said, well, what else did you learn that was helpful? Uh, he, and he's going to law school. And he said, well, I learned to stop comparing myself to other people and berating myself for what I didn't have. And I learned how to reward myself for making incremental improvements. And I thought, so he's comparing himself to who he was yesterday, which is dead on. It's like, there's no envy in that, man. And, and that's a game you can win. And it's a, an improving game and anyone can play it. And it's so I thought that's great because now you know how to reward yourself. And so he's in law school in his second year. He said he's going to be a corporate lawyer in, in New York. So he has this massive opportunity because that's an immense opportunity. And he thought he's trying to figure out how to integrate his legal education in the corporate world with his profound emergent morality. And I think, yes, great, man. You hear a story like that, it's like, well, that keeps you going no matter what. Like, more of that, right? More of that. You can't get too much of that. And then I can tell people, you know, you want to look for something meaningful. You're not going to find anything more meaningful, more deeper than, deeper than trying to orient yourself towards the highest good, trying to tell the truth, and trying to further other people's development. It's so rewarding that it's... It's almost it's too much. That's the problem with it. It's it's too much. And part of I think why I've been sick is because of that too much. You know, um, partly from observing how much lack of encouragement there has been for people and how many people are starving spiritually and psychologically because of that. I saw that on such a massive scale, but also to just see the consequences of having that addressed to the limited degree I've been able to address it like it happens all the time um, and it, it I had this guy it's so strange this guy walked by this guy the other day on blur again and he was kind of a street looking guy kind of rough you know and bent over about 45 50 but looking older than that and and he had a mask on and he wasn't looking so good and he he took his mask off and he came over to me. I had no idea what he, and he said, I love you. I thought, Jesus, my friend was walking with me. The guy told me about it. We walked away. I said, what do you make of that? And he, you know, he just shook his head. He said, you sure have a lot of people, men coming up on the street saying that they love you. It's like, it's a hell of a thing, Russell. Do you, and God, how could you want something more? How could you possibly ask for something more than that? How could anything that was narrowly selfish, let's say, in the sort of gr grasping capitalist mode, you know, to use the cynical left-wing uh, uh, caricature, and, and, and it's not like there's never truth in that, but we're all grasping, that's for sure. How could anything that could possibly produce, even in theory, compete with that? They're not even in the same universe. I completely I understand what you're saying. And I'm thinking about it, it's because you have this very particular background in clinical psychology and academia as a teacher and uh, the edification and raising up and teaching of people is 
plainly so important to you and it seems now more than ever and I feel how open-hearted you are and perhaps have always been and I um I wonder if there's something I this um the question continually asked of you of why do you feel like you resonate with males uh, it seems to me I I wonder is there a wound in your uh, maleness or a wound in your adolescence is there something in you that is open do you feel that has made this connection possible because it can't simply be the translation of these theories I think some of it's actually the doing of my father I think I had a good father and he encouraged me like my dad instilled within me his faith in me fundamental like we had our set twos you know it's not like our relationship was without conflict but I knew I had something that none of my friends had or virtually none of them which is I knew that my dad fundamentally believed in me right fundamentally regardless of anything and what what he he thought that fundamentally I suppose that it was a good thing that I was around or that I was a good thing something like that but it was deep and, and that gave me a sort of it, 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 confidence I suppose or faith both of those both of those I suppose it's it's it he encouraged me I had that I had that encouragement and I think so you asked me a specific question I, I um, I'm encouraging young men why because I, I think I believe this it's like God only knows what you could do and we need it like you you're a good example I mean look at you Christ you're unbelievably creative you're so smart you jump from idea to idea you're very charismatic you know, and you have this immense talent and that led you into wastelands of all sorts, you know, because you, you didn't know how to control it or, you know, you weren't oriented properly. God only knows why. But you're trying to gather that all up and to figure out what to do with it. It's like, great. Who knows what, who knows what piece of the puzzle you would contribute if you got your act together and contributed everything you can. And I mean, it's clear that you're trying to figure that out. Otherwise, people wouldn't be responding to you. It's so, ma so many of the comments were, you know, I, my opinion of Russell was, you know, neutral or negative or whatever. But I watched this and like, he's really doing his best, obviously. And that really impressed me. So it's so nice to see that kind of judgment. Hey, it's like, well, I can see that he's trying. And so now I'm on his side. And so you can, it looks like you can kind of trust people to respond positively to that. And that's so nice, isn't it? That that's actually the case. That is. You can let yourself out. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I, I can begin to, I get the idea that sort of, again, looking at it as best as I can interpret from a Jungian perspective, that some of these unformed primordial forces that found expression in some ways that were unhealthy for me and probably for others like, are, are now aligning. They're becoming hmm, sort of, I don't want to use the word colonized because it has so many negative connotations, but uh, activated uh, towards positivity. In integrated. 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 Yeah, because you don't want to suppress them or repress them. You want to bring them on board. Board. Mm, yes absolutely and and that's you know and that's the other thing i'm telling young men too and 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 because i i certainly believe this to be true all that aggression that capacity for aggression and violence that physical strength that dangerousness those are unbelievably useful once integrated admirable 
you know, I talked to Jocko Willink the other day, and, and, and the guy's a monster. You know, he's two feet thick, and he's, he's a warrior from the age of three. That's the kind of person he is. He goes to Naval SEAL training, and what do they teach him? You have your friend's back. You subordinate all that antisocial aggressiveness, that dominant striving, that power, that physical strength, that desire to destroy even, all of that. You take that, you control it, you, 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 you serve other people with it, you have their back. And he says very straightforwardly, you know, that um, he's an effective leader to the degree that he's been an effective leader. It's because he takes care of the people around him. And that's it. So he integrates all that, what could otherwise be, you know, catastrophic criminal or genocidal horror. He's trying to integrate that into, uh, into, into whoever it is that he can be, if he's everything that he can be. You know, he told me about his, he got a literature degree after he had, had, had gone through the Naval SEALs. And I just kind of skipped over that um, for, I don't really know why. And he called my attention to it. And then we had a 20 minute conversation about the vital importance of literacy. And it was so interesting that this character, you know, who's got all these other attributes would then say, yeah, but you know, I got literate, I became literate. I learned to communicate and that made me, that multiplied my ability manifold. And so don't, don't hesitate to develop your, well, he didn't say it in these terms, but your logos. It's like, absolutely, absolutely. And men are turning to him, young men in particular, because he's such a good role model. He's written these books for little kids about how they can, you know, fortify themselves. And it's not no competitive games. Let's raise little boys like little girls. It's not that it's all at all. It's like stand up, man, man up, monster up, get it together. And then go past that, right? Then subordinate that to truth and love and the ability to communicate. Then you're something. But th that way the vices can be virtues, right? You don't have to say, well, we'll just eradicate aggression. Well, yeah, sure. It's like cutting off your arm. You're going to get rid of that motive force? That'd be like getting rid of sexuality. You don't want to get rid of that. You want to integrate it. Yeah, it ain't easy. I mean, what I want to... Like and I, I loathe being asked questions like this because it's sort of, but like because it's you'll see why when I ask it. Like I create. There's people that have a very negative response to me. There sort of always has been ever since. Even when I was famous for frivolity, there were people that and I, and with you, you found yourself sort of very quickly at the heart of a cultural war for some reasons that were I suppose obvious because of the nature of your emergence into sort of public life and the very you know the specifics of that but what i think when i see you talking when i listen to you talking and you are an open-hearted man you have these sort of plainly your relationships with females define you how do what do you think is the energy behind the specifically gendered aspect of like the the public discourse prior to you know the, the couple of years you took off for health reasons what what's you know if we can say like you know in your analysis which i I would still query about like, you know, the, the attraction of men is because you encourage and you give them confidence. I, I feel that somehow pain, the wound has to be the point of connection, but that's probably me bringing my own stuff. Um, and, and then for females. Like, no, what is, no, I don't think it's just that. I mean, what's being activated. There's something, the there's something about that. That's right. I mean, I, I, I well, that's a good, good question. It's not like I, I understand why the, the, 
the people that I'm talking to are disaffected. The men I'm talking to are disaffected. I understand that. That's the shared pain, I suppose. I understand why they're doubtful and about putting forward their best. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not contemptuous of that even. I, I see that it's a deep wound in, in a sense, and no wonder. And, and it is something that we all share. But, but you can just admit that and, and then figure out what to do about it. That's the next thing. Despite all that, you say, yes, really, really, that's the case. It's the, despite the patriarchal tyranny, despite the malevolence of our ancestors, despite the Holocaust, despite the catastrophe of human history and, you know, the inadequacy of your own ability and, and the blackness of your heart. It's like none of that's justification for not moving forward in, properly. So then what do you feel like, um, you know, and it's a question I ask again uh, of myself, it's, it must be interesting, I imagine, to, for someone to be literally an analyst and then be the subject of so much cultural attention that is, um, you know, polarizing. Uh, so we've sort of d discussed a little what, what we, you know, you feel that is that, you know, that speaks so deeply to men and I'm getting a clearer idea of it. But like the, the inverse of that, the sort of the famous YouTube, you know, let's call them the YouTube greatest hits, that Channel 4 News interview, the GQ one. What what do you think was being driven at there? I understand that, you know, like sort of because I've watched them and I know them that sort of it's on the, like, no, you're not um, paying attention to gender inequality, pay gaps, etc. And and I'm, I'm familiar with your arguments, uh, like which are obviously, again, underwritten by data. But what do you think is the emotion, the feeling? Why is it? Why is this academic at this point in history? Why? Well, why? I would say, well, some of it's OK. So f some of it is that females are rising up to challenge the patriarchy. They are doing that, and, and they're more powerful than they ever were. Like, women have always pushed and tested men. Well, why? Well, it's hard to raise a child, and you don't want someone around who's going to be another child or who's going to be a danger or who can't control his emotions. And so how do women figure that out? Well, in with every means at their disposal, fair and unfair. They're going to throw everything they got at you and watch. How do you react? I'm provocative. I'm unfair. I'm lying. I'm truthful. I'm intelligent. I'm sexy. I'm ugly. Like, you name it, man. How do you react? It's a challenge, like a fundamental challenge. And women are choosy sexually. They reject. It's a, it's a specifically... It's not specific to human females, but... <laughs> It's a deep characteristic of human females. And now we're seeing that on the entire cultural level. It's like, just who the hell are you men anyways? And do we even need you? And you think, well, that, it's a little harsh, isn't it? It's like, yeah, it's really harsh. And is it fair? It's a game that can be played crookedly. It can, it's a game that can be played by people who want you to lose. But it's also a game that can be played by people who want you to win. And I've seen this, even in, the, even in the interviews I've had where the, the women in particular, the ones that you were talking about, are going after me. It's not like they're exactly dissatisfied if it doesn't work. Like, they're dissatisfied at one level because they didn't attain dominance in that moment or they didn't show me up for the psychopathic tyrant they think I am or something like that. So there's a loss there. But there's a deeper re relief in some sense that that gambit didn't work. 
You could see that with Kathy Newman. I, I don't know if that was as clear with Helen Lewis, who did the GQ, um, which has, by the way, attracted like 7 million views in the last two months. She wrote another article for the Atlantic Monthly going after me again, you know, which is... What that's done is drive people to the YouTube interview and they make their own conclusions as a consequence of that. But a lot of it is this poking. Like children do that to parents. They test them. Why are my children misbehaving? Well, you've put them in a new environment. They don't know what the rules are. So they're coming at you with all their tricks to see what you do because they want to know what you do because they need you to do the right thing and they need to imitate you and they're going to pull out all the stops to test you. And so we're seeing that at a cultural level. Well, maybe it's just a tyrannical patriarchy that's always oppressed women. Well, yes, to some degree. Well, exactly what degree and what are we going to do about it? It's like, fair enough, you know? And that can get malevolent and counterproductive because sometimes, like I said, the game is being played so that the person is set up to lose. But even in those situations, you know... If those interviews, if the Kathy Newman interview would have resulted in my failure, let's say, at one level, Newman would have been satisfied, and at another level, she would have been deeply disappointed. And the deeply disappointed level is more fundamental than the satisfied level, which is persona and ambition and, you know, one-to-one -one dominance competition or something like that. It's shallow. So, you know, I was thinking the other day, well... This woman, this is an interesting story. It's so strange. Um, Nellie Bowles in interviewed me for the New York Times, and she wrote this sophisticated negative piece about me, which never really culminated in direct accusations, but intimated things constantly. Like, this is where the idea that I would like to distribute women to, you know, uh, uh, unable incels so that social violence would decrease. That's where that came from, that idea. Which, um, She wrote a mea culpa six months ago, which got very little attention, and certainly not by the New York Times, saying that she used her power as a New York Times reporter to destroy people's lives merely for the attention it brought to her. And she says it that blatantly, and it's not like two sentences, it's a whole essay. And she says that she's, you know, reformed since then, and, and, and I'm not going to comment on that, but that's, a, <laughs> that's, a, that's an example of this challenge not being played fairly, right? So there is a challenge there that's valid, but she was using it to ratchet herself up whatever hierarchy she, she thought was of importance. Yeah. Do you think then, Jordan, that's unwittingly or otherwise and perhaps it could this is the only way things could be that we occupy archetypes in the lives of others and that we choose other people unwittingly to occupy archetypes in our own lives and culturally somehow you became the the figurehead the totem the amulet of a kind of articulate patriarch and so it became a lightning rod for this kind of antagonism. Do you think that's what happened? Yes. Kind of a collective... Yes. Mm. yes, I think so. So she called me defender of the patriarchy, right? And they had me pose. It's a kind of an infamous photograph. Um, I'm, I kind of have my hand up. I'm leaning sort of casually against a doorway 
And someone told me who was a photographer that that's how you pose people when you want them to look arrogant and uncaring. Like it was, I was set up in that photograph. I didn't know. I should have never let them pose me. It was a mistake. It was like having them put words in my mouth, but, but I trusted what was happening and I trusted her for that matter. Um, in any case, defender of the patriarchy, and that was an insult, right? But I thought about that, especially after reading her Mia Culpa. I've thought about that a lot and thought about this question that you just raised, which a Wall Street journalist asked me this week as well. It's like, and because I keep thinking, I've kept thinking over the last five years, this is going to go away. I've had my 15 minutes. I've had my two weeks. I've had my month. I've had my six months. I've had my year. I've had my five years. It's like, it isn't going away. And why? Well, that's very, but I think that she put her finger on it. That is me, defender of the patriarchy. And why not? You know, I taught at Harvard. I taught at the University of Toronto. I'm an educated Western white person, guy. And so it's got to be someone. And, and so why me? Well, there are competitors, so to speak. Some of the people I mentioned, Steven Pinker, Jonathan Haidt, they're public intellectuals with a, with a wide-facing audience. But I have one step foot in the scientific community and one step in the religious community, one foot in the religious community, right? So that also makes me very peculiar and hard to... box in, I suppose, in some sense, right? So it, it, it's both of those things, the scientific establishment, the enlightenment. I have great respect for all that and, and a certain facility in those domains of expertise. But I also have one foot in the world of stories and religion. And yeah. so I think that's the combination of those two things, I think, is what's doing it. Maybe you're unable to harness those kind of archetypal forces if what you're dealing with is cold rationalism. Maybe it doesn't fire up the kind of coagulate force of when one is, or when you are talking from a perspective of mythos, you know, um, what I suppose Definitely. Is well, that, that whole domain, the, I, was, I talked to Stephen Fry this week, and oh. Stephen Fry wrote the intro to the famous atheists' manifesto, Hawkins, Hitchens, uh, Dennett and Harris, but but Fry is an interesting character because on the one hand he's a humanist atheist, but on the other hand he's an unbelievably accomplished actor and dramatist and with a deep and abiding interest in mythology. So he he's he's a figure that's got one foot in each camp. He's a strange person in that regard, but that's that's rather unique. And you know that because the narrative domain is the domain of entertainment it's the domain of romance it's the domain of adventure it's the ethical domain as well you can't have that kind of engaging conversation in the scientific domain it's because it's about what is whereas the romantic domain is about what you should be that's that's interesting because that's what you need to know you need to know what the world's made of fair enough but only so that you can go out and act and so my lectures have always had this and that's partly because I'm a psychologist, a behavioral psychologist. They have this, I want this to be useful for you when you act it out. That's always on my mind. How is this piece of information useful? What can it do for you? How can you apply it? What does it imply for your behavior? And so that produces the compelling aspect of my lectures, I suppose, to the degree that they are compelling. Yeah, I love them. Why? Like, why? That's it. So, because, you know, in some sense, in some sense, I, and I suppose this is part of the reason people have been interested in our conversations, you're a good spokesperson for the sort of person who automatically assumes they're my enemy. 
but we talk and you said you find the lectures engaging why like what because you think the ideological divide such as it is would stop that well because i think that um in essence you're dealing with your own interpretation of deep truths. You're trying to bring together uh, uh, various disciplines to tell interesting stories. When I watch, like, say, the lectures of, like, you know, before you were famous lectures, where it's like you can see kids sometimes not properly listening and stuff, I'm thinking, I fucking know, this is amazing. You know, maybe you're talking about Disney cartoons and stuff like that. And I think, wow, this is proper what education should be. It's entertaining, it's forthright, it's opinionated. The areas, you know, like, where I'm not like a left-wing person in a kind of like a sort of socialist Marxist way, much more like you know, the sort of the English traditions that have a, that owe as much to Methodism as to Marx. Is for me, it's kind of quite Christian and fairness, brotherhood, equality, exploration, diversity, joy. You know, these are the kind of things that interest me. Uh, but there, there's a sort of a degree of sort of individualized, I don't know, uh, venom and vitriol accrued through my uh, particular experiences. But when I watch you I don't feel at odds with you and I'm sure from a certain cultural perspective people would say oh well that's because you too are a white male injured and it's like sort of enjoying Jordan Peterson sort of speaking up for those kind of values but when say for example like you know so I, I enjoy it because I think you're a great storyteller I think you use information very well and perhaps you know like it, it seems to me the thing that you are uh, like you know that, uh, that we discussed about wouldn't it be a great experiment to be truthful regardless of the cost it seems that you've tried to do that it, it, in your own way i also think that many of the criticisms of you have like deliberately extracted nuance in order to create counter simplistic and um pejorative counterpoints although i would say with something like when we were chatting the other day and you did see you know it was your obviously it was michaela's podcast and um you were like you i said at the time oh he's still got it because you were dispatching bon mots from the hip somewhat glibly i thought at the time and i'll i'll say it now like when you say something like um you know it, it, in your view maturation isn't possible without parent without becoming a parent now i'm a parent of quite young children so i recognize like wow yeah it's certainly it's changed me but i've got lots of friends that are not parents and uh, there's probably a charge around that for them and i wonder what you feel uh like about like you know people actually that sort of that, well we that, did talk about that a little more yeah we talked about like you know, duty I, I, and all that I, yeah i remember I well remember i said it. it's hard i don't think you can be mature until someone is more important than you are and it's hard to find that you find that with kids and some people don't because their kids never become that for them but that having a child is one virtually certain route to that and if you don't have that you have to find something else and that's hard it's not like people don't do it but it's really hard are you aware though of the potential impact of saying something like that for like sort of you know women in their 30s that don't have kids or men that feel like you know are you, are you like what you know obviously none of us would say anything if we considered the myriad potential consequences but when i see how much compassion and how much, uh, how open-hearted you are and obviously having met you personally seeing how you spoke to my wife about for like probably longer than the podcast lasted well, but the first time we met you chatted to her about parenting and all that you know um how do you feel when you think that because people take you very seriously and look up to you that um some of the, the data that you dispatch kind of because for you it's a, a kernel that you've arrived at through contemplation may injure in some sense people that are the recipients do you see it as a necessary spur does it concern you 
it concerns me, but it goes <laughs> back to, it does concern me. It goes back to what, what I descri described earlier, which is I say what I believe to be true because I think all things considered, there isn't a better way to do good. And then you might say, well, there are all, all sorts of utterances that are true, true, that are also a knife. And so then I would say, well, there's the danger of uttering them and the, there's the danger of not uttering them. They're both dangerous. And so with the emphasis on children, for example, like I do believe that our society radically misleads young women about what's likely to be most important to them, especially between the ages of, say, 15 and 21 or 22, because my experience has been that for most people, career is not the defining um, value of their lives. And I think that's even more true for, for women than for men. And so, so if you teach young women that career is the most important thing for them to take their place in the patriarchy, let's say, um, you don't emphasize the radical importance of ch children and you do the children a disservice and you do the young women a disservice and and so you say well it's very important that you have children for a whole variety of reasons and then you say well what if impact does that have on people who can't have or chose not to have children and well it's a negative impact clearly but that doesn't stop the that doesn't that doesn't change the circumstances I'm trying to, you know, the virgin and the, and the child, the mother and the child, that's a holy symbol. If a society doesn't worship that, then it's doomed. Well, that means you have to worship that, and you have to tell your young women that. That's a holy image. Why? Because it's of such crucial importance. And you say, well, men and women are just the same. It's like, well, no, actually, they're not. I'm they're not, not just the same. I'm not making that claim, of course. About... I know you're not. I'm, I'm not. I'm not suggesting at all that you are. Um, but, the, but here, though, Jordan, the sort of motif of the virgin and child is sort of as a, a, a mythic emblem engenders uh, or represents rather values of, um, you know, maternity, care, vulnerability, duty. And I feel that many of the challenges that we are facing is this kind of unconscious literalization of symbolism. For example, sometimes when I hear um, like the condemnation of like fairy tales or whatever, I feel like I don't think that this was intended to be a cultural artifact that imposes gender identity on females rather like that we need two component parts in order to awaken the sleeping beauty of the divine feminine the male component must be integrated say but like so then with this reverence for the virgin uh, and and i think this is very interesting particularly as an english person because uh, you know of course our like a you know famous diversion and disavowing of catholicism resulted in this kind of unconscious uh, deification i think of both elizabeth the first second victoria thatcher like we had to bodicea we had to sort of like create that counterpoint, if you eschew the of virgin course. from your myth, the virgin, the powerful female that has to emerge elsewhere. Um, but I suppose, you know, the, the obvious... Yes, yes, definitely. Yes. And those fairy tales, a lot of them are extremely old. We don't know how old, like 10,000 years old. Some of them have been traced back 
to oral traditions that are unbelievably ancient, and you mess around with those things at your peril, you know, and to some casual ideological critique of a 10,000-year-old story, it's like, be careful what you're desecrating. You don't understand it. And your your comment about Sleeping Beauty, let's say, being awakened by the kiss of a prince, it's, well, those stories survive because they're true at multiple levels, psychological, social, biological, all at the same time, and susceptible to multiple valid and informative readings. You know, and we, we, you know, we, we can have a serious discussion about this because we have the bandwidth as serious as we can manage. Well, look, the Christian idea is that Christ is a universally redemptive figure, but he's male. Okay, so where does that leave females? What's their model? Well, the answer is we don't exactly know, you know, because Christ is the redemptive figure hypothetically for females too, yet he's male. Well, then we answer that at least in part with the figure of Mary. It's like, well, Mary is a divine figure in some sense equivalent to Christ. Well, she's Mary with the child. Well, that's part of the female adventure. But it's not Mary, Joseph, and the child. It's Mary and the child, right? So for the woman, at least this is our symbolic presupposition, there's Mary and the child and there's Christ. And I would say what it looks, and I've thought about this because my students used to always come and ask me, well, what about the female counterpart to the hero myth? And it's like, yeah, what about that? Well, in fact, that's what our whole culture is trying to figure out right now, the female equivalent to the hero myth. Well, to me, it's like a well-developed male is, in some sense, Christ on the surface and Mary with the child behind that. So it's first and second. And then for the woman, it's reversed. She's Mary and, and the infant primarily with Christ behind that. That's how it looks to me. And, and so... I could be wrong, but I've watched, you know, it's like, well, there's a deep longing for, for a child in a woman that's different than that longing for men. For me, uh, you know, my wife wanted to have our, our child, when, when, our first child, when we had it, and, and she was ready. It was now. And for me, it was, well, it could be later. It, it wasn't the same hunger. And I'm not going to ignore that when I see it, especially when I see it everywhere I look. It's like, okay regardless of my egalitarian presuppositions, that's what I see. I'm, I'm not going to say I don't see it. I'm raising these two daughters, and, you know, sometimes, not too, too often, but you know, I don't like the idea that they are going to be introduced to a culture that isn't going to absolutely advantage them, somewhat because of my own narcissism, arrogance, and egotism. But, like, I, I you know, like, so I... And, you know, I'm sure one might imagine that a feminist watching this, that my only interest in feminism comes from my own sort of, you know, selfishness. And I, I, I hope it's not that. But I, I, I would... Well, it would be okay even. Look, you've got a stake in it, man. You've got two daughters. And so they're more important than you are. And so, of course, you're interested in the advancement of women. And rightly so. And if there's a selfish aspect of that, it's actually laudable because you are your daughter's father. So you should take that personally. It's like... That, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. It, it gives you skin in the game. And, mm. and it also shows you why women's issues are relevant to men. It's like, yes. well, you have daughters, just like I have a daughter. I care what happens to her. Yeah, it's more important than what happens to right. me. It's more yes. important. 
I couldn't have a like an ideology that was formulated on my gender, people around the world that I'm never going to meet. You know, this is like, of course, I'm, listen, I want to get to the point. I'd love to get to that Buddhist point, that Christ consciousness where I would I wouldn't discern even. I would love all love, 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 nothing but love. But where I am at the moment, yes, I, I would advantage. Well, my Christ, children. you could start by trying to love someone before you loved everyone. You got to <laughs> practice, man. And, you know, you got to practice with the people that are close to you, obviously. So that's fine. That's, and, and, you know, if you can extend that, once you're competent in your ability to love, if you can extend that, well, more power to you. But it's perfectly reasonable to start with what's right in front of you. It's a heavy enough responsibility. Jesus, yeah, man. Uh, like, it's pretty clear that you, um, like, you know, I've seen you and Michaela together, and I've, I've read about your relationship, and it's very obvious that she absolutely adores you and that you love her, and the conversation that you had after our podcast was very, very beautiful. Yeah, I was shocked. I was sh- that's so in- so interesting, you know, because you and I and Michaela talked, and then that 30-minute conversation with her was kind of appended to the end. But it's really interesting to see that, the conversation that we all engaged in has been received very well. Thank God for that. But that 30 minute conversation attracted its own attention. And it's really, I was talking with my parents about this the other day because they watched the video and were thinking, well, my mom said, well, why do people want to watch a conversation between you and Michaela? You know, because she's genuinely perplexed by all of this. And, uh, um, and so, but it, it had something I said, well, it looks like they're responding to the quality of the communication or something like that. Like we were, um, there, people regarded the father-daughter communication pattern as uh, valuable, I guess, something like that. Yes, That's it what it very, looks like. I, very, very beautiful. And like, but like, say, say if we could sort of somehow, um, you know, um, gosh, send to the sort of the, 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 the detractors and the people that have uh, uh, approached you with a particular agenda, this kind of what is um, encased in your relationship with your daughter. If we could, um, I, I, I wonder, were there points where you were raising her, where what you felt most aware of was that she was going to face um, limitation or lack as a result of her sex or gender? Have you, you've never felt that? You've never felt... No, we had other society's... things that were far more pressing than that. Like with Michaela, with Michaela, it was whether she was going to live. And right. after that, it was whether or not she was going to be, you know, unbearably uh, disabled and in chronic, horrible pain. So issues like that were way, they just didn't come up really because we were preoccupied with, now we were preoccupied with things that were more pressing. But, but having said that, I never thought about her gender as an impediment. I just thought about her having a different set of problems than my son. You know, people have also been curious about why my son is sort of absent from from our family discussions and so on. And um, he uh, he's doing just fine. He's a relatively private person, and and that's fine. He's protecting his privacy, and we're all happy about that, and and so on. But um, I never thought of Michaela as disadvantaged. I I knew she'd face a different set of problems. And it, they weren't, and it's also the case that I didn't try to address all those problems because some of what she needed to learn, she had to learn from her mother. Her mother could teach her ways, things about being a female that I can't teach her except sort of in response because I don't know them. I only know them as a secondary observer. And so, you know, we certainly, we listened to her a lot. We, we let her know that we'd support her career choices if they were genuine and, and we'd support her desire to have children if that was genuine and 
but the, we regarded both of those as, as of crucial importance and validity and laudability and helped her sort through that, which was quite complicated. It's complicated for young women. They, they're smart. They, if they're smart, they want to be educated. It takes years. She wanted to be a physician, but, well, her health got in the way of that, but she didn't know how to do it. Ten years, let's say. Well, how am I going to do that and have a family when I'm young? Well, I didn't know the answer to that. You know, our answer was, look, we'll help you. We'll help you, you know, we'll help you with the kids. We'll help you any way we can. That, that doesn't undermine your independence because you can help your kids too much. We'll help you, but not, we'll help you as much as would be good for you, or we'll help you as much as we jointly agree would be good for you. And that'll make your decision to have children, for example, easier because my wife, Michaela's off in Dubai at the moment, but Tammy is taking care of Scarlett, her daughter, once a week for one day. And that we're very pleased about that and pleased to have access to the granddaughter. And, but it's also of use to Michaela. And so that's how we're, we're helping. That's our, both ends, the career end and the, you know, and the, and the family end. Yes. I think you know, I, I can see that the sort of the, just the personal details of your familial history meant that those ideas weren't at the forefront of your mind. And I hope that that won't be taken as a kind of um, being dismissive of those sort of evident struggles. But like listening to you now, what I feel like is that you operate on a kind of a psychic plane that is ulterior to this impermanent shifting sands of cultural values i mean i suppose an interest in, in archetypes and a, 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 a desire to illuminate the arcane necessarily presupposes that that contemporary culture and its vicissitudes are regarded as somewhat secondary even if that weren't you know a, a personal account of well my kid was sick so i had to deal with all this shit you know it feels like that yeah, the reason well, culture and yeah, changes. That, I think that's a uh, hopefully that's a that's a valid observation. I mean, we were more concerned with the kids that that we were more concerned with their behavior at a moral level. I would say. I mean, in the first book I wrote, I said, "Don't let your kids do anything, your children do anything that makes you dislike them." I mean, that was a rule that Tammy and I really followed. It, it, that's not a trivial. That I didn't state that for trivial reasons. It was like it was a rule in our house. It's like Tammy and I would talk if if the, any of the kids were doing things that we found annoying, we'd talk to each other about that right away. That kid's annoying me. Oh well, <laughs> okay. And am I being reasonable? It's like yeah, it looks like you're being reasonable because he's annoying me too. Okay, do we want him to be annoying? Uh, no. Not at all, because we want to like him, because we actually really love him. So we like to like him, too. And if he's annoying us, he's probably going to annoy other people. Okay, so what do we do? Well, we sort out his behavior for the next week. He doesn't get away with anything. We hold him to a high standard. We hold him to a high standard and sort him out and see what happens. And so we'd clamp down on him. This was with Julian in particular, because he was a tougher kid, a more willful kid when he was very small. Um, and... That worked so nicely. I mean, and, and Julian became a reliable person. We would rely on his opinion when he was as, as young as four. You know, consult <laughs> him about things, really, because he, he really developed a... a, a he, was, he became extraordinarily reliable. And it was so helpful because when Michaela got terribly ill in, in, in her teenage years, we, we didn't have time for Julian and his normal problems. And he knew that. I said, we tell him, look, kid, like, you know, you're kind of on your own for now because this is a catastrophe and we have to take care of it constantly. And it, he was he was at home a lot in grade 10. And he was a very popular kid. He stayed home. He helped take care of his daughter, uh, his, his sister. She relied on him. 
And by that time, he was reliable already. You know, at 14, he, he decided not to go out partying and drinking, which, of course, he did, and, and sort of in secret, in the right way. It never became an issue because he handled it. But he was there when we needed him all the time. It was so useful, and that, that was partly a consequence of disciplining him in the appropriate way when he was young. It, 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 it really it worked. I mean, I have a very... I, I, I love him so deeply. I have such a good relationship with him. It's so lovely. I go over to his house now, and he's got it in order. You know, I can go there, and it was so useful when I was sick. I could go there, and there was no tension. There were no elephants under the rug. He, he got married a few years ago, and his new wife and Tammy had clashes. You know, mother-in-law, daughter clashes. And we sat down and, together and said, look, this has to be sorted out. You two... Have to do, have to love each other. You have to be real friends. All of this has to go. That's what we're all aiming at. All of us. It's not your fault. That's not what we're saying. We don't want it to be this way. We want you to be there for each other in every possible way. And they sorted it out over two years. And there's that just doesn't happen anymore. We go over there. There's no tension. And it's such a relief. It's so nice to have some peace when you're ill. It's like you can go over there and it's like, there isn't some god-awful psychological catastrophe occurring that no one's talking about. And so... I suppose one of the things that people must be encouraged by is that you have a, um, it seems to me, an optimistic perspective while we're without neglecting the presence of suffering, that problems can be solved, that the problem of feeling like a... Uh, an uninitiated male can be solved. The problem of uh, family dynamics being troubling can be solved. Uh, and I suppose that's a, that's an optimistic worldview. Well, that I, I've looked at the darkest things I could possibly find for a long, long time. I mean, that was partly why my house was covered with Soviet-era art. And I mean covered, like every square inch was covered. There were paintings on the ceilings. I had hundreds of them was completely covered with art. And it wasn't all Soviet, but that was there to remind me all the time. Here's what we're dealing with. Wake up. Wake up. And so then you think, well, you come out of that and you say, yeah, we can master this. Terrible as it is. Terrible as the Nazi death camps were. Terrible as the Soviet gulags were. Terrible as we all are. We can, we can master this. We can, we can take all that. We can fix it. All of us, we can do that. And so you can't be optimistic unless you're unbelievably pessimistic because then you don't get to the bottom of things. You know, is malevolence real? Like, it's real, man. It's satanically real. It's unbelievably real. But it's not the primary force. It's not, it, 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 it cannot overcome love and truth. Yeah. That's so how it is. So we have to go very deeply into love and truth. Well, it's, otherwise it's not credible, is it? Like if you say love and truth, but it's, and your, your enemy is a paper tiger, who cares about your stupid philosophy? But if you say, well, you know, look at the death camps and then you're one of the guards and that's your soul. Can you overcome that? Well, yes. Well, that's optimistic because there's the darkness. The light's only bright insofar as it can overcome the darkness. And so the darker it is, the more credible the light becomes. If it's real. 
you know, like what, what happened to me in the last month, I would say, is I've been in unbearable pain. It's unbelievable amounts of pain. And accompanied by a terror that only that kind of pain can produce. Unbearable. And, you know, I've been tempted towards all the things that I believe that you should be tempted towards, bitterness and resentment and anger and the conclusion that the universe is fundamentally unjust and untenable in its, in its, in its most basic structure, worthy of eradication. That's a uh, Mephistophelian outlook, technically speaking. And I concluded, it's not, that's not helpful, regardless of the provocation. Regardless of the provocation. It's no excuse. <sighs> I suppose um, a, a sainthood, perhaps, is a, a kind of living on beyond death, a kind of al allowing this suffering and pain to mortify, to bring about a kind of ego death that may facilitate an unfolding of a deeper self. My personal experience with suffering and awakening is that there is a sort of a, a, a regressive or uh, undulating component that I feel sometimes so close to God, so free, so present, so able. But I feel also that withdrawing back, it doesn't seem to have the permanence of uh, the Buddha's enlightenment. It doesn't seem to have the permanence, the sort of the the transcendence of time. You know, I feel like I still. Well, that's I, the I, ultimate goal, isn't it, to manage that? If you can manage it at all, ever, that's a, quite the accomplishment. Then the question is, how do you have that occupy more and more of your life? Right, and that, that's really, what should someone chase? Well, obviously, the kingdom of heaven, paradise on earth. It's because, by definition, nothing could possibly be better than that. And so you say, well, now and then you experience something like that. Then you think, well, what are the preconditions for that? And how do I continue to occupy that space? Well, that's a very complicated very complicated problem for, for, for the human race as such, but also for each individual to solve. But it's worth practicing, because why would you practice to do anything else if you knew that that was possible? I mean, <laughs> and so it, and I, don't, I, I think there's all evidence that that's possible and real. I think the harder-headed you are, even as a scientist, the more real that becomes. Are people capable of having transcendent experiences of paradise? Yes. Is that built into our biology? Looks like it. Is it attainable through ethical striving and other techniques as well? Yes, it's real. Now, what that means ultimately, I don't know what it means ultimately. I don't know. I don't know, you know, I don't know what we mean ultimately, what our consciousness means. But it's possible that it's not nothing. Yeah. You know, I want to talk to Dawkins. I want to talk to Richard Dawkins about this. You know, I think, I think men compete to elevate other men to the ideal place. You, you put men together and they're on a mission. They organize themselves and they follow the most competent man in relationship to that mission. Because they all want to participate in the mission. And then you can imagine that there are men who are on average competent across many missions. And so they get elevated to a more dominant position, a more authoritarian, authoritative position. Well, the women are the women select them. That's the men who are attractive to women. It's like the women outsource the problem of mate selection to men. It's like you men get together and decide who's worthy. Okay, once you've done that, we'll take the worthy men and they'll propagate. 
That's the human race. And to me, that's a cooperative endeavor on the part of humanity at the deepest level to elevate the, 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 the most ethical and desirable elements of consciousness. And, and I think that, that that's happening on a biological level as well. It's part of the selection mechanism. So Dawkins says, well, it's blind watchmaker. It's like, well, the, the, the genetic mutations are random, but the selection method is sexual. A huge part of it, it's not natural selection, or it is, but it's sexual selection, specifically the women select. Well, who do they select? Well, high-status males, powerful males. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean by status? Are you sure it's power? And so back to Jocko Willink, you know, well, he's this incredibly, this guy who has this incredible capacity for aggression, but he subsumes that on under a more sophisticated ethic, and that actually makes him more of a man, not less. So the idea that it's power and dominance, and that's what women are selecting, it's like, no, it isn't, and it's not what men are selecting either. They're selecting something like productivity and generosity. They're selecting integrity. They're selecting charisma. They're, they're accepting the willingness to sacrifice yourself in the service of others. Complex ethical decisions. Yes, it's also interesting to contemplate how these ideas scale when for hundreds of thousands of years they likely evolved to operate within small social structures and now they're being invited to operate across massive social structures. And, you know, like an idea like, for example, like, you know, alpha males and females, how does that transpose beyond communities of... 75 to 100 and into communities of well, thousands well, Russell, millions. I think I think the whole history of religious thinking is exactly the attempt to answer that question. So imagine this. Imagine ancient Mesopotamia before it became integrated as a kingdom uh, under one rubric, one religion. So there's all these tribes and each of them has their own god. And that god is a representation, a personified representation of a kind of ethic. That's what that tribe feels is the moral way to act. And, that, and that's the god there. Yeah. And so, well, then two tribes come together and the gods fight. They fight conceptually and physically, in some sense, in their embodiments, in the, in the people who worship them. They fight. And then the gods meld together. They, as a consequence of that fight, that cooperation and competition, you get an emergent god that governs both tribes. And then four tribes come together, and then eight, and then 16, and then 32, and 64. And you get the battle between all those gods, the comp the competition between the gods themselves and the election of the highest god to the pinnacle. And that's a well-documented phenomenon in the history of religion. That's absolutely what happens. So in Mesopotamia, you get the emergence of Marduk. And what are his prime attributes? He has eyes all the way around his head. So what does that mean? He pays attention, right? It's not thinking, it's attention. And he can speak magic words. So what's the attribute? Because you asked this question, what is the attribute that scales? The capacity to pay attention and speak magic words. And that does scale. And it's right, and that's the logos, that's the Christian logos. It's the same thing. And, it, and it's right. That is the highest, that is what is highest, as far as human beings are concerned. And it is what we all worship, whether we know it or not, because when we find someone engaging in that logos, they're compelling, and we're compelled to imitate them. Yes. I feel as well that there is a, a, a um, 
inherent disingenuity around uh, much of evolutionary psychology's biases towards materialism in that ultimately they find themselves at the threshold of a kind of faith when dealing with the mystery of subjectivity. Uh, also, many of the sort of templates, m m notoriously in the case of Dawkins, sound uh, in structurally almost identical to some Christian motifs, i.e., you know, the selfish gene, the sins of the father will be visited upon the son. It seems like, for me, much of it is a kind of mimicry of the kind, as, as is commonly found with secularism and humanitarianism, of the Christian ideologies that preceded it and which it planned, like which it purports to depose. Well, this is the point that I tried to make with Sam Harris over and over. It's like, well, all your ethics are Judeo-Christian. Yeah. And you're just, and this is a Nietzschean point fundamentally, even though Nietzsche was a pronounced anti-Christian, at least from the dogmatic perspective. I mean, he knew clearly that what we regard as ethical automatically, let's say, well, there's some grounding of that in biology, but it's also a consequence of, of our past. Obviously, what was the past ethic? Well, roughly speaking, it's Judeo-Christianity. Well, are you not a product of that? So Nietzsche said quite straightforwardly, all philosophy is the unconscious, it's the unconscious revelation of the philosopher's presuppositions. And where do those presuppositions come from? Well, He's the voice of the culture. So I've been attempting to get the evolutionary biologists to take the religious instinct seriously. It's like, take this seriously, guys. I see this with Pinker, for example. He wrote The Language Instinct. There's a, there's a chapter, and I may be doing him a disservice. It's a long time since I've read that. So we'll have to allow this to suffice as an example. There's a chapter at the end that deals with like culture including religion and art. And it's sort of, well, that's what our intellect does when it's not doing anything important. It's sort of like, it's sort of like entertainment and play. It's like, no, the religious and cultural domain is the source of everything, everything. And all, even science derives from that. It's central, not peripheral. It's the driver of culture, not a secondary consequence. Yes, there's a biochemical counterpoint, uh, counterpart to that, that, you know, that consciousness is a byproduct of these various organisms that are collaborating. You know, I, you know, I see that, that, yes, if, con like, if consciousness cannot be um, authored, designed, created, then it necessarily is consequential and preferably inadvertent. This, for me, seems like a kind of recalcitrant uh, atheism, ignoring this evident imperative, this will to awareness. Uh, what well, to? I, I, I think you're, I think that's true. I, because one of the unsolved problems is, well, what is being in the absence of consciousness? Like, is it even there? You know. So you think, well, everything conscious, conscious dies all of a sudden. Everything. Well, what's left? Well, the Earth is still rotating around the sun. You know, the material substructure is still there. Well, really, is it? Really? Really? Does, so time itself doesn't vanish with those who experience, when those who experience time vanishes. What's left? The quantum fluctuations? What level, how do you even conceptualize what's left? Is it subatomic particles? Well, what are they in the absence of a conscious observer exactly? No one can, 
it's the answer to what is there in the absence of consciousness is by no means obvious. And the role that consciousness plays in being itself, in bringing being itself into being, that is a deep mystery. And I agree that that's not, that's, that's dismissed as a complex problem. Yes. And I think it is a, it is a kind of recal, it is a recalcitrance. Just as failure to take the religious instinct seriously is a, is, a, is a form of recalcitrance. It's like we're way past that. You can reliably induce incomprehensible mystic states by chemical means, which we know. Yeah. We, know the, we know the means. You can do it reliably. What does that signify? We don't know. It signifies that there's something real there. So real you can do it chemically, like it's really real. Well, this is a, this, that's the biggest unsolved problem, I think, that faces us right now, fundamentally. Is, is, it's something like that. Is. Yes, because it has become a kind of orthodoxy and it is a, cl a closely guarded realm, my sense is that if this, um, this religious impulse could be released again culturally, perhaps to some degree I would contest unleashed from its um, uh, roots in the desert myths that it may again be meaningfully mobilized. Okay, so uh, look, look, I got, I got something funny to tell you, all right? So I held Timothy Leary's old position at... No Harvard. way. Yes. He, he had the same position as, as I did. What was that department? Maverick nutcase of the university. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. That's exactly it. So um, it, it was personality psychology was the position that I occupied there. So now Leary launched the psychedelic revolution in part. He wasn't, he wasn't, the, 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 he wasn't the first who did it, but he certainly popularized it to a great degree. And, and, and he, he kind of thought the way you thought, I would say, or didn't think enough and thought that way. And that's not an insult. Look, one, one of Jung's, here's a, a Jungian point. The purpose of religion is to stop people from having religious experiences. Hmm. Okay, and that's good. You see, that's the thing, is that these experiences are so beyond that without a structure, they can just demolish the psyche, the society. Look, people were afraid of psychedelics when they first emerged and no one re-emerged, rediscovered. And no wonder, we do not know what to do with them. And their fire like a fire that we can barely comprehend. You know, no one in the Old Testament sees God and lives. You burn away. And, and the psychedelics, if they do what they purport to do, if they do what they appear to have done for us across the course of history, that's their domain. And so we need to figure out how to bind them. Now, Roland Griffiths is doing that at... Johns Hopkins, right? He started in scientific investigation into hallucinogens again, but, but under much more controlled conditions, much more cautious this time around than in the 60s. They just blew Leary away. You know, and then he was this countercultural jester, an intellect gone astray, and no bloody wonder because it was LSD, you know? I mean, but that wasn't good. And so it was just illegal instantly. No, we're not going there. We have no idea what to do with that. We're going to shut it down now. And we still have that problem because no one knows the significance of the psychedelics. No one. 
Yes, whether this mysticism is uh, from a, 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 a using hallucinogens or other techniques to access divine realms, not everyone in the community is the shaman. The, the the role the nominal role of an interpreter of the divine experience appears to be a necessity so the community at large can be pragmatic can operate in the material i was right to- right well and yes absolutely and you know the people who were uh utilizing these substances say 2000 years ago within the context of a culture that had the technology they would purify themselves beforehand you know before having the experience they would, and that was a form of ethical purification. There were rules and, and structures, and there was a, I mean, I, I believe in all likelihood that Christ, the Christians eradicated the hallucinogenic tradition, but they did that because of terror of the Dionysian element, which is capable of tearing societies apart. And so you put your finger on it. It's like, well, you have this Dionysian experience that's an experience of divine madness, but divine, but also madness. What do you do with divine madness? Well, especially when well, your culture has to operate, you have to get up and go to work, right? You, you have to do the prosaic things that are in, and we don't know how to bring those together. Now, I, we're, I believe we're, we're going to have to learn. I, I believe it's a necessity. I, I, I think we have to learn how to do that. I'm going to talk to Roland Griffiths this week. You know, he's giving psilocybin mushrooms to spiritual leaders as part of his research program it's unbelievably daring it's Mm. unbelievably daring and roland griffiths is like he's this cut and dried traditional conservative respectable guy you know who's doing this nonetheless and he has to be both of those because otherwise it just wouldn't be possible. This is uh, tags nicely, Jordan, to a point we touched on earlier, uh, something that I would call the sort of necessary myth of progressivism, you know, that uh, that, uh, uh, only succeeds because we prohibit and control progress in other areas and the, the this kind of, you know the application of scientific study to this territory is very exciting and my assumption would be that the reason it hasn't been meaningly explored in the past is because it's potentially disruptive uh, to your point earlier about not assuming malevolence when ignorance would do not just potentially disruptive absolutely disruptive in every possible sense in a revolutionary manner uh, in a sense right. so now now is the time because it feels like you know wherever you stand in this sort of cultural conversation whether you're a person that was sort of incredibly excited by trump or disgusted by trump or whether you're a person that sees biden's emergence as sort of salvation for the west or just the sort of a grim uh pageantry of meaningless democracies it's i think most people can agree that new ideas are required and the intervention of the divine the access of the sacred the resacralization of our lives and the um, emergence of new terrain which as you say can't be experienced simultaneously by everybody otherwise yes but literal bacchanalia but for 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 us to somehow house to know that 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 this is what this is the danger of materialism the foreclosing on that potential there is nothing there there is nothing there this is an inadvertent side effect of like kidneys and of organic interaction you know i feel that yeah, that, that Roland Griffiths could be doing important work, particularly if it's explicitly about rediscovering the sacred and presumably... It is that. Look, like one of his research studies, you know, they, they gave psilocybin to smokers. 
they had a religious experience. 85% of them quit smoking by, and, and maintained that for six months later. It was a single dose. It was pharmacologically revolutionary. And it, it looks like the drug had to produce the experience and the experience, it wasn't like a direct chemical effect, yeah. so to speak, of the psilocybin. It had to produce the experience. And people rated that experience as one of the five most um, valuable experiences of their life. Yes. And, and it's an open question how much influence psychedelic use has had on the development of human beings, far more than, than is popularly accepted far more than we suspect i think i've been looking into it deeply for 10 years 15 years a long long time i started reading john allegro's uh, the sacred mushroom and the cross 25 years ago a revolutionary book i didn't I had no idea what to do with it he's a linguist he says christianity was a mushroom cult and here's the linguistic reasons why it's a technical wow. book i read it and i thought I have no idea what to do with it. In what He's sense? Incredible sacrament, scholar. body of Christ? The sacrament. Yes, mushrooms. And look, Gordon Wasson has demonstrated to the general acceptance of the academic community that the Hindu um, Soma, the drug that gave rise to the Rig Veda, um, was, was Amanita muscaria, the shamanic mushroom from, from, that the Siberians use, the red mushroom with white caps. So... I'm, yeah. Would yeah, you, well. would you, Jordan, with everything you've been through, would you take a, a plunge into that psychedelic space? Would you take that voyage? Not at the moment. Yeah, I know. I mean, I'm, I'm in recovery, you know, and like, so, and, the, and whilst I know that people say, yeah, no, it helps people get off drugs. I'm off drugs. I'm off drugs 18 years, you know, but I'm fascinated by that stuff because I want to experience the sacred. A friend of mine who's in recovery said, the reason we shouldn't do it is if it's good, why would you stop? You know, and like, well, you know, it's a funny thing though with the hallucinogens, they, they don't seem to be susceptible to misuse the same way that cocaine or let's say benzodiazepines might be. Um, they don't produce physical dependency the same way. And people aren't inclined to do them every day, partly because they don't work. If you do them every day, that just doesn't work. And generally the experience is so overwhelming that people although they regard it as exceptionally meaningful, they're not necessarily all that keen to re-experience it. Yes. It's, not, it's not nothing. It's, it's, it's something, yes. something completely, and now for something completely different. That's what it is. So, and this time around, maybe we'll use the technology like adults. It's reuniting us with the, sh with the shamanic tradition that was lost in the West. It's... I mean, the, the people who introduced psilocybin back to the West, that was in, in, through, the, through the actions of a Mexican uh, 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 um, uh, a woman of, of Mexican Indian heritage. And they had an unbroken tradition of psilocybin use, and she allowed these outsider Caucasians to participate. And that's how the psilocybin made its way into the West. That wasn't very long ago. That was just in the 50s. And, and you see the same thing happening to some degree with ayahuasca, which is its own... Um, you know, mystery to say the least, even to try to figure out how the Amazonians possibly figured out how to make ayahuasca. It's a mystery that no botanist has been able to even come close to solving. I mean, the Amazonians say, well, the plants told us. And then we think, oh yeah, sure they did. It's like, well, you know. Yes. Come up with a better explanation. 
<laughs> There's lots of plants in the jungle and you have to take these two particular plants that don't grow close together and cook them in a very specific way. It's by no means obvious how people figured this out. It is extraordinary. There, it seems to me, are different ways of receiving information that did not include the senses or conventional teaching. It seems there are different ways of receiving. Well, there's wisdom. no, there's no doubt about this. If you're, if you're serious about this and you start investigating it, the first thing you learn is that, in Urmer Chelly Eliad, who's a, a scholar of religious history, he wrote a book on shamanism, which is a very good book, and he concluded that any psychedelic shamanism was a um, deterioration of the original shamanism that it was actually you know a, an aberrant practice but but i i think Eliot it was absolutely brilliant i've learned so much from him but i think he's absolutely wrong i the evidence is clear people have been using psychedelics for for tens of thousands of years and to we have no idea what the consequences of that would be I think the book of Revelation is a psilocybin mushroom trip. I really believe that. Mm. I really believe that. And so, you know, what if that's true? What are the conservative Christians going to do with that? I'll probably get pilloried just for saying it, but I, I do believe it. It's what it looks like to me. Yes. So what if that's true? What if that's true? What does that mean? It means to me that we have to reacquaint ourselves with sacredness and divinity in a more practical and personal way. It seems to me that many of the things we're talking about, about being sort of submerged in darkness and suffering, our real understanding of pain, our, our pursuit of the light, it feels to me that if, in spite of the darkness and suffering, if we could, if we were, if some of our community at least, and possibly, you know, certainly more people than are currently, had experiences of different different experiences of consciousness so in in territories that appear to be inhabited by the way of course by much of the uh, perennial and pan uh, pan the, the kind of the symbols the, the recurrent perennial symbols that come up in a lot of your work is like that it's that for me is as close as we're going to get to experiencing truth in a way that is vivid and real and for me this could be something that could re in yeah well, and what does that culture. mean about truth you know i had a huge argument that went over many sessions with harris sam harris about truth you know and he insists upon the reality of empirical truth and fair enough but to say that that's the only truth there is and that's what true means is well certainly that isn't what true meant a thousand years ago and it still meant something and you know an arrow flies true that's a statement about the quality of the arrow. A true love, that's the statement about the quality of the love. True is a very complicated idea. And there are clearly ethical truths, and we clearly rank order them. Just, just as we do that instantly, for example, when we say that one book is deeper than another. We're, we're alluding to a structure, a, a value that's real, in whatever that means, and that different works are placed in different places on that ladder. So... Yes, it seems like that, that that's an art, an attempt to confer a kind of authority on materialism that C.S. Lewis confers on spirituality in, in, in mere Christianity, that there is an inhered meaning, that we understand ethics, we appreciate it deeply beyond an individual level. And it doesn't surprise me that that, that, that would be conferred upon a kind of a, a, a materialistic truth, a kind of a physical truth. Well, there has ethics. to be some contact between them. 
obviously, like because there they are, they're both there. So there's some manner in which if they're both real, let's say they meet, that, that has to be the case. So the material and the spiritual have to meet. You know, I think, well, you reduce consciousness to its material substrate. Well, what does that mean? It means you elevate the material substrate. And then I would say, well, that's what Christianity attempted to do with its insistence that it's the body that's resurrected as well. If the body is capable of producing consciousness, it's much, material is much more miraculous than reductive materialists think. And that's fair. Like, we'll get there. We'll think, oh, well, we, we, we put matter in a box. And then we said, well, consciousness, we tried to reduce matter to that box. It's like, well, matter might not fit in that box. God only knows what matter is in the final analysis, but it's obviously capable of giving rise to consciousness. So what does that mean about matter? It means that any interpretation of matter that only stresses its deadness is insufficient. That's what it means. I sometimes feel that all science amounts to little more than local customs when we consider the neutrinos and weak interacting massive particles rushing through us now, rushing through matter at the same pace as it rushes through air, as it rushes through the earth, millions per second that can only be studied deep within the earth in laboratories dug out adjacent to mines in purified water, only in f the presence of these weak interacting massive par particles only inferred from the presence of movement of other particles because they are invisible the presumed uh, consequences of uh, dark energy and dark matter what what all, all knowledge can only be subjective when when it is proven that even on the sort of material or submaterial plane there are such extraordinary phenomena from which we are sensorially exempted happening all about us all science customs and, and as you, to your point earlier about space and time how can these rather animalistic concepts that require subjectivity of some kind exist with the absolute extraction of consciousness we can never yeah, know well, it's a it's a mystery i can, that was very poetic thanks man that. and i'm very tired and i felt i had to contribute something i thought I, <laughs> that, was, that was really something you you whipped up a, like a poem about physics right on the spot that was really something thanks Thanks, Professor, because... I, I noticed, man. <laughs> Thanks for noticing, because what I felt like is I felt like I'm in round 15 with a real pro here. Yeah. I better pull something out. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I hope that you are... Uh, please forgive me as a, a younger man, sir. But I hope that you will uh, protect yourself, or protect yourself uh, during this time, protect yourself from the appetites and this is not meant to diminish um, my regard for you and for your abilities but I can feel a change in you and perhaps that's because our relationship has changed or because you've changed or because the world has changed or some uh, unknowable combination of all of those factors but my sense is that I would uh, I, I'm a, a, aware from personal experience and I know that you are uh, too of the the threat, the menace, the toll that it takes to exist in that space. And I personally am unwilling to put myself there so lightly these days. And I, I hope that you will preserve yourself, preserve the nuance and sophistication and complexity of some of the things you're saying by not entering into the, 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 the dumb arenas that we are occasionally invited into. I'm, 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 doing, I'm doing my best to use my judgment properly and listening to people guide me and trying to find the right people to talk to and not taking that for granted or exploit it. And, uh, you know, it was very, I was very hesitant about stepping back into the public arena, but 
I mean, I don't know what else to do. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I don't know what else to do. So I'm doing that and I'm trying to do it as well as I can and, and not to trivialize any of it and, 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 or as little of it as I can possibly manage while listening to people who I've helped, you know, I've said to all my staff, like, we're trying to do something of high quality here. Tell me when there's an error. Tell me when there's a mistake. Tell me when we're deviating. I want to have the deepest possible conversations with the most interesting people I can possibly conjure up and share that with as many people as possible in the most effective way possible. That's our goal. That's what we're trying to do. And, you know, and then the question is, well, do I have the stamina for it physically and mentally? And we'll see. I hope so. It looks like as I've re-entered my life that doing this is been good for me yeah um with some exceptions uh the some of the contact with the press has been very very toxic and very very it just just about killed me that london times thing just about yeah. it was rough too 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 destabilizing and so i'm trying now if i talk to reporters generally speaking i i want to have a like a plan with them i don't want to just do an interview i, I don't want to just do a book review i want to figure out what problem we're trying to discuss and then I want to have that discussion and have them write about that. And like this, like what we're doing here, that's the right thing to be doing. And, and, and so that's what I'm, I'm trying to tilt things in that direction at the moment. So, well, we'll see how that goes, won't we? Yes, we will, sir. Do you pray still? Yes, always, constantly, for all <laughs> sorts of things. Really, it's like I pray that... Uh, that I'll be able to stand up in the morning. That would be good. And I pray that my pain won't get so intense that I'll be disenchanted with my life. Uh, pray that I don't say something stupid and careless and cutting and hurtful and, and, and uh, that I'm good to my wife and my children and that I'm grateful to my friends and to my listeners and viewers and readers and that I watch my words when I'm talking and... It's a high stakes game, right? In all sorts of ways. And, and I, I don't see how I can retreat from it. And so I'm moving forward and we'll see how it goes. And with God's will, grace and all of that, some luck and some support and some caution, maybe there's a path forward. I hope so, but yes, prayer, it's a constant state of mind, I would say, in some sense. You know, I'm trying to attend to my words. And, you know, words, eh, they, who knows where they come from, right? You said yourself, well, they can get twisted and torn by these, these peripheral concerns of, of egotistic, peripheral, fractured concerns. You bring, you integrate that, you try to clear that out, and then they well up from some place you don't know. And, and that's what you want. You want that to be able to to flow up through you, that's your, you did that so nicely with that poetic description there, you know, and everyone wants to hear that when it happens, including you, when it's happening to you. And so that's why I tell people, watch what you say. Don't, if your conscience objects to something you say, stop saying it. Huh. 
Yeah, I've been learning Shakespeare at the moment for uh, it's like a project. You know, sort of look at it sort of like Henry the Fifth and Richard the Third and Richard the Second and uh, I, the, the sort of the uh, raison d'etre of this sort of compendium where I use I use Shakespearean monologues and duologues to tell sort of a biographical story in my own or you know autobiographical oh, story. Oh, really? So you're 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 spontaneously using Shakespearean forms in a creative manner? you're no longer spontaneously because they have been curated but I like say like you know Richard III's now is the winter speech is like what it feels like to be ugly and to feel discounted and not included and to be you know curtailed cheated of future by dissembling nature this is what it's like and Caliban's rage against Prospero this is what it's like to hate the father or you know in, in my case the stepfather and then you know Richard II's contemplation on uh, feeling his head I was thinking of it actually while you were talking uh, earlier Jordan he has this beautiful speech about how uh, I have been studying how I may compare this prison where I live unto the world and for because the world is populous and here is not a creature but myself I cannot do it yet I'll hammer it out my brain I'll make the female to my soul my soul the father and these two beget a generation of still breeding thoughts and these same thoughts people this world in humours like the people of this world for no thought is contented and the glory of Shakespeare is it's like he's writing from he's coming from that place man he's channeling he's channeling he's speaking in universal truths and uh you know or archetypal truths perhaps you know so and and you know and that's what you do if you're a humanities educator that's what you're trying to impart why learn shakespeare well he was the master of the language wouldn't you like to be one and just think what you would be like if you were a master of the language unstoppable you're marduk pay attention and speak properly you're unstoppable force and an unstoppable force for good I mean, we saw what, what corrupt words could do under, under Hitler, let's mm. say. What could words that were spoke forward forthrightly do? They changed the world. It was so nice what you did with Shakespeare. That was so good. I could see that you did what you're supposed to do. You took the words and you made them yours. So that means the person and the words met. And, and, and you're an actor and look what you did with that. It's so remarkable. It's so powerful. And you can't help but look at that and think, God, I wish I could speak like that. I wish I could do that and express my own experience in those words. What a gift that would be if we could teach children how to do that. That's what the humanities were for. And people are bailing out of them like mad. You know, they're leaving them behind because we don't even understand that what that is, how powerful that is, how yes. remarkable it is. There is there is beauty like uh, and it's perhaps it's easier to understand from a say uh, an Vedic position that you know if you're chanting a mantra that is ten thousand years old there's a point where the person that you are disappears dissolves and all that remains is the mantra and perhaps all the people that ever chanted that mantra and perhaps the people like those in the jungle that discovered that this bark mixed with this leaf unleashes this perhaps the mantras have this potential and perhaps as it is said the and the sages go to the outer reaches of the psychic territory and come back with this vibration and of course if you believe it's nothing while you're doing it you, you won't unlock its potency but there seems to be a point somehow within the rhythm within the beat within that frequency where it sort of overwhelms my sense of self and perhaps yes perhaps like a, the English language is capable of it too that if you walk the steps that uh, the pathway that Shakespeare plotted for you that that 
that your consciousness is changed. Your consciousness that's is That's the worship of the ancestors in its real form. Ah. Right? That's the communion with the dead spirits of the past, and then they're no longer dead. And God only knows how real that is. Yes, they live in us. They live in us. And it's not just oh, in our genes through heredity. And who knows what's behind it? I've had intimations that, you know, what's behind our ancestral heroes is the great figure of Yahweh. No, it shines through across history like that. That's the spirit of the Father. And what is that? Well, it's certainly whatever it was that you were just possessed by when you did your Shakespearean recitation. And you made a great case for that, that communion with the ancestors. Then it takes you away. And what are you then? Well, you're this thing that's extended over 10,000 years, not this trivial ego that you were clinging to, you know, with all its inadequacies, but that, but that which could replace it if only you were willing and able. Wow. And how much better would that be for everyone, including you? Yes, yes, yes. Hence the moment on the street with the young man and you feel, oh my God, I was transcendent of myself. I, he was transcendent of himself. There was some commonplace, something passed between us and neither of us were ourselves, but we were both somehow each other as all, all of these categories dissolve into something more beautiful, not competing, more beautiful. Yeah, surely this must be the goal. Surely this, surely this is the, ought be the sole goal of culture, not just defining pitiful, new trivial territories from which to shoot darts but to create a target we all might aim at together yes and then continue to improve forever all right right so it's so as good as it can possibly be except that we could make it better yet and that's the task ah thank you jordan peterson well I know in, in, you know, Canada never sleeps, they say, but here on these little islands, Arcadia, Albany, Albion, it's, um, it's, um, it's, it's very late. And I, I, I can see even in, with your recent health difficulties, you still have more stamina than I. And uh, I, I, it's, it's such a joy to speak with you. It's so lovely to have the treasure of your attention. And uh, I just love speaking to you. I'm m most grateful to you. I, I very much enjoy it. Thank you. I, you should certainly be in my prayers. I, I've, re, I, I've found our conversations, uh, you know, a conversation that works, you just lose yourself in it. Ah, yes. And, and, and I've had that experience reliably talking with you. And, and that's, it's, there isn't anything more valuable than that, to be able to engage in that. And maybe that's what we're, hopefully we're offering some of that to our, the audience that we have the intense privilege of addressing. Yes. And who can participate in that and, 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 and who are encouraged in every possible way to do that in their own life and, and as they see fit. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jordan Peterson. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a joy. I hope you have a beautiful day. I hope that you are uh, free from pain. Please pass on my, my regards to uh, Tammy and, uh, and uh, I, I hope that we get to speak together again soon. It looks like we haven't run out of things to talk about yet. No, I, I, we didn't really cover parenting. I mean, these kids, there's stuff in your first book, like, you know, about sort of getting those, those uh, near-do-wells to lay down. And I'm sure there's all sorts of stuff in beyond, beyond order. They, this seems to be the territory they currently inhabit. <laughs> they could have contributed to this. <laughs> Thank you. Talk soon, man, I hope. Bye. Yeah, my prayers and love to you. Thank you. Take care, mate. Bye-bye, bye-bye.
<laughs> Jesus Christ, Russell. <laughs> oh, how lovely. What the hell are we doing? <laughs> I don't I don't know yet. <laughs> I don't know yet. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. That was the full two-hour edition. You've probably done all sorts of things. If you listen to that whole episode at once, then you're a tough person because a lot of people like a little break. When I'm listening to a podcast, I have a little break, don't you? Wander around, might be listening to one on a run, might be listening to another bit in a car, might be listening to another bit just perched in a loft, reflecting, you know? What, anything you want to add before we wrap this up, Jingo? No. New jingles coming? Yeah, it's going to be good. The jingle jingle? No, not that one. That will come, though, because you will ask Justin, will you? Yes, I, well, I'll tell him tomorrow. Good. And what's the other new one? <laughs> the one where you sing goodbye. goodbye. Is it's it going to be good, yeah. Cool, can't wait. All right, then. Well, thank you for joining me. Thanks for being part of this community. We love you, mostly unconditionally. Although, of course, as you know, there's a small subscription fee. But <laughs> <laughs> that's the only condition. I'm sure you've paid higher prices in your life. I know I have. Thanks for joining me on Under the Skin. Please join me on Above the Noise, also, you know, on Luminary for no additional cost. And uh, we'll be talking to you next week with when our guest is Edward Snowden. And almost certain that Jenny Mayfield will still be here we don't seem to be able to get rid of her seems to be the way it is thanks for joining us